Hello. Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Robbie Martin. For our Patreon subscribers who are listening, you're already very familiar with our ongoing series, The Freemasonic History of the United States. And we're about to release part seven of that podcast series. And in the process of researching that series and doing reading, I came across a very, very intriguing book, a book by an author known as P.D. Newman called Alchemically Stoned. And the general premise of the book is that there is a symbol used in Freemasonry, one of a sprig of acacia, a certain kind of tree that's very commonly found all over the world. There's tons of different variations of this tree, this species. This book, Alchemically Stoned by P.D. Newman, is essentially saying that, that the acacia symbol as used in Freemasonry may actually be a reference to consuming acacia. And by consuming acacia, what we really mean is an early ritualistic use of DMT by alchemists and early Freemasons. P.D. Newman is not alleging that all of Freemasonry is somehow keeping this secret about that the real secret to Freemasonry is DMT or anything like that. His research is a lot more specific and actually goes to even proto-Freemasonry, before Freemasonry, alchemy. But this is a very esoteric discussion we have, one that touches on a lot of obscure historical figures who are involved in ritualistic magic or alchemy or Freemasonry. So if you're unfamiliar with who some of these figures are, I would recommend pausing the podcast, doing some searching on the internet, um, because this is going to be a long and deep discussion I'm going to have with P.D. Newman about his new book called Angels in Vermilion. And what Angels in Vermilion does mostly is it goes to other potential mentions of not just ritualistic use of DMT, but alchemical recipes and alchemists from the era discussing using hallucinogenic drugs, including things that sound very, very much like DMT. And if you're a fan of other writers like Gordon Wasson, like Graham Hancock, and you like sort of their deep dives and sort of, you know, attempts to uncover historical references to drugs or mystery drugs. If you're a fan of that stuff, you will definitely dig P.D. Newman's work. And one difference or, or distinction that I think should be made between his work and the other people that I just mentioned is this is not like ancient history that P.D. Newman is, you know, really focusing on here. This is like fairly recent history in the bigger scheme of things. And I think that that's what makes it so compelling for me. Without delaying any further, let me bring on P.D. Newman. And we start this discussion by me asking him what his rank in Freemasonry is. What is your Masonic rank and what branch of Masonry do you identify with? 
Uh, so I went through the Blue Lodge degrees, which are the first three degrees of Freemasonry. And that's what's called ancient craft Freemasonry. That's how it started. I, I mean, technically it started with two degrees, but the, as we know it, it's a three degree system. Um, I went through those degrees in 2010. At the end of 2010, I was raised to what's called raised to the sublime degree of Master Masonry. That's the the ritual itself is called raising. I next went through uh, the York Rite, which is an American uh, system of Masonry where it builds upon that last degree of Master Mason. So it's as if that's not the last degree, but it continues on with the allegory. Uh, And the same is true of what's called the Scottish Rite, uh, which I went through shortly after. And the Scottish Rite, again, is like the York Rite. It's an amalgamation of pre-existing high degrees of Freemasonry that, um, and this is where Albert Pike's genius comes in, that were taken and sort of adjusted so that they fit conceptually and temporally, chronologically, so that there's conceptual and chronological continuity throughout the degrees so that each lesson builds upon the last and there's one fail swoop that happens. This isn't necessarily true of the York Rite. Um, Its degrees are just sort of a pastiche of things put together that doesn't really have conceptual continuity. But that being said, um, I have been through both of those um, rites. I am not currently a member of the York Rite. I am a member of the Scottish Rite, and I'm also a member of what's called the Masonic Rosicrucians, Circuitus Rosicruciana and Civitatibus Federatis, and that is the American sister society of SRIA, Circuitus Rosicruciana in Anglia, and this is the organization that was founded by Robert Whitworth Little and that eventually gave way to the famous Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn that produced um, Alistair Crowley, Dion Fortune, Arthur Edward Waite, and all those heavy hitters of the 19th century occult revival. Amazing. And just so our listeners understand, the York Rite and the Scottish Rite expand upon the first three degrees of masonry, and they sort of are in parallel to each other, right? They're not, they don't, it's not like you have to graduate from the York Rite and then you jump to Scottish Rite. It's sort of like you could right. do either one, they're different. Yeah, okay. they're different, and uh, the focus on in the York Rite is Christian because they're I see. top of their organization is the Order of the Temple, which is Knights Temple, which was of course a Christian order. So unlike other forms of Masonry, they require that you be a Christian to join. I see. Now, lots of Masons do not agree with this. Albert Pike, for example, said at one point, you know, the minute a, a Masonic degree limits itself to men of a certain religion, that degree is masonry no longer. And this same sentiment was repeated by uh, Frederick Speed, who was actually the Grand Commander of the Knights Templar in Mississippi. So the Grand Commander of the Templars even held this sentiment that it's not really the right way to go about it. So that's that's one big way that the York Rite differs from the Scottish Rite. The Scottish Rite uh, admits men of all faiths, which is what Masonry um, is supposed to do. At its earliest days, it was a Christian organization. But a man named William Preston introduced a notion called 
the universality of Freemasonry. And it's, uh, it, it draws on this notion that you see come up in French, uh, French philosophy of men in Dupuis, but it's this notion of all deities being um, versions of the, of the sun, like solar gods, saviors, dying and rising gods. It really arises also from the research of a man named uh, Frazier in his book, The Golden Bow, where he talks about dying and rising gods. And Kersey Graves wrote a book called The 16 Crucified Saviors, you know, that again, looks at this idea that all messianic savior deity types are simply, they're simply types of the archetype of this dying and rising uh, solar deity. Um, so I'm not saying that masonry necessarily espouses that, but I think that that's the underlying sort of essence behind its ability to accept men of all religion and worship God, give it, giving God a, a generic name like the great architect of the universe. But even that's not really generic because great architect implies craftsman, which is the literal meaning of demiurge, which is what Plato called the creator of this world. And Plato was, of course, a pagan. I hate to use the word pagan. He was Hellenistic and worshipped many gods. But his movement towards one supreme god as the demiurge was a decided movement towards monotheism. And this, within that same stream, after Plato, you see like Proclus, he had this uh, tendency to just like in the tree of life, catalog all existing pantheons of deities onto this one template and say, well, now we can say that this angel corresponds to this God and this goddess corresponds to this goddess. And I think underneath masonry is that same tendency to say at the, in the final, in the final analysis at our essence, we're all worshiping God. The names just change with the region. And I think that's what we're seeing with uh, with the universality and how you look right differs in being strictly Christian. Tell me the premise of Angels in Vermilion. This is your new book um, coming out on May 19th. Just give us an overview of what is in this new book and, um, you know, like your elevator pitch for it. <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, well, this book didn't really form in a vacuum. It formed following my first book, Alchemically Stoned. And in that book, it really focuses on the identification of uh, this particular trend within Freemasonry where um, the acacia, which is a symbol that shows up in the Master Mason degree, is uh, used in such a way that it transcends its symbolic domain and enters the realm of ritual where they're actually drinking a substance uh, that's they're identifying and saying is the acacia and the acacia being uh, many species of acacia being possessed of the entheogenic compound dimethyltryptamine. Uh, this immediately raises a suspicion. Well, were they getting high off the acacia? Was this an entheogenic context that they were using? And the following lecture that you encounter in each of the cases where this is undeniable, which are in, um, the Egyptian rite of Cagliostro, and in the Russian rituals of a man named Pyotr Ivanovich Melissino. Um, in these rites, uh, the, the lectures that accompany the use of it um, 
after the candidate has drunk the the substance are are also indicative of the entheogenic experience. They're talking about things that uh, in in 18th century language are the equivalent of the expansion of consciousness and raising of consciousness. Um, So in the first book, it was really just uh, limited in that all we could do was say, look, this is what's happening, because I couldn't explain how that came to happen. I, I didn't understand at the time uh, how the sprig of acacia started being used. Was it that it was always being used this way or was it that the gentlemen who were doing this were simply aware that this object that is a symbol in Freemasonry in reality it is also possessed of a hallucinogenic compound? And were they simply exploiting that and using it in their ritual that way? I couldn't answer that question. Um, so that the the new book, Angels and Vermilion, it it came out of a more intense uh, scrutinization of this particular um, line of transmission, and I realized that each of these individuals that were doing this within Freemasonry were alchemists, and even the context that they were discussing it within Masonic ritual was in terms of alchemy because they're calling the acacia the prima materia or first matter, which is an Aristotelian term that alchemists began to appropriate to hint at a hidden um, substance that from, from a process that you could put this substance through, you would get something called the lapis philosophorum or the philosopher's stone, which depending on who's telling the legend, it could transmute base metals into gold. It could, cause immortality, it could cause visions of angels, a whole number of things. So when it became apparent that this was, wasn't necessarily a Masonic problem, that the psychoactivity of the acacia within Freemasonry was an alchemical problem, uh, I realized I needed to back up and take a more global view of the problem. And then it became very clear that, that these Two men, Cagliostro and Melissino, were just two beads along a much longer thread of a, of a of a, a particular transmission within alchemy. Because we don't want to say alchemy; there are, there are alchemies plural. You know, there sure. are many alchemies as there are alchemists who are attacking the problem of alchemy. It's not some and unified it, school of thought that's like you know right. official. It's Nothing like, you know, that's not to say that the first people who came up with the idea of alchemy didn't have one specific thing in mind, but we're so far down the line that many people have applied different solutions to those problems and more than one of them seem to work. And in this case, uh, the acacia is the only thing that works. It's the only thing that solves this riddle throughout this transmission. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. Um, I... So I read your book, Alchemically Stoned, honestly, pretty skeptically when I when I first sat with it. I mean, it was like, I mean, the subject interested me. I heard of it when I started reading it. I was like, I, I went into it thinking I wouldn't be convinced. But by the end of the book, I mean, actually, by the first I think it's the first third of the book, you pretty much kind of cinch up all the, the clear um, acacia connections you just mentioned from Cogliostro, this other Russian Mason. But then. 
after you wrote this book, I, I guess I'm just curious about what process you went through because after you found those connections, which are blatant and undeniable from my perspective, I, I came into this as a skeptic. I mean, those are those are pretty clear smoking guns as far as you know consuming acacia as a as a ritualistic thing. And then, how did you did were you like really excited when you sort of went back to alchemy and even found more connections to reinforce these finds? from your first book or how did that process occur? Like, was it sort of like, Oh my God, like I'm, I continue to dig and I'm actually finding more and more, you know, things to sort of like build my case. Cause that's not necessarily usually the process someone goes through with finding little hidden gems like this. And it's kind of remarkable that you continue to build on this case in your new book. So what, what was that like? Well, I, I, I was the same, you know, even when I was writing my first book, I was the, and still am the ultimate skeptic. <laughs> I'm like, how can this be possible that this has been overlooked in so many cases? Um, and I, I think it's overlooked in the same reason that it was overlooked within Freemasonry. It's that Masonry doesn't necessarily attract a psychedelic demographic. It can, I'm not saying it doesn't, I'm proof that it can, because I joined masonry after psychedelic experiences and I wanted something that could put my feet on the ground while still having my head in those clouds and give me some path to walk on instead of just floating off into the distance, which is what was happening to me. It might not happen to everyone, but that's where I was. And uh, so I, I was the ultimate skeptic. And, and when I came to masonry and encountered it in this way, uh, I was not expecting to find it. Uh, so when you ask, you know, how was it to continue that process of searching? When I published Alchemically Stoned, I was um, not happy that I couldn't solve that problem. I felt like I was pointing my finger at something without a solution, like the equivalent of bitching about a problem without giving a, a solution to that problem. And uh and it was left unsaid. And, and it wasn't until, um, like I said, I looked to alchemy and started investigating those texts, many of which you can't just find online. You know, I, I spent thousands of dollars on alchemy texts just to try and scrutinize these things, you know, and, and try and find any example. And you know, all we talk about in the book is vacation, but I, you know, I found multiple examples of other entheogens, um, particularly the, uh, what I found was probably the most fascinating was um, in Sigmund Richter's True and Perfect Preparation of the Philosopher's Stone, wherein he purports to reveal the prima materia and tell what it is by name. He doesn't reveal it by name, but he does describe it in such a way that it's undeniable if you know what he's describing. He's not describing acacia. He's describing Amanita muscaria mushrooms. He says it's this fruit that grows from the root of a certain tree. Amanita muscaria are mycorrhizal, meaning they grow within and upon the roots of certain trees. He says that they appear after um, Jupiter, the rain bringer, has come. You know, they grow after the rainy season. And he says that uh, it must be collected when it is fruitful. Uh, and he gives a color description that's indicative of the same red and white color scheme. So the, the, what, what I found wasn't just references to 
what were clearly the same transmission. Uh, it was stuff that's all over the place. Um, and a great example is the Royal Society itself, which I will probably get into um, in this talk. But uh, but uh, uh, late, these are late period alchemists at the very beginning of what we would call science, you know, at the beginning of the scientific revolution and the birth of the scientific method with the Royal Society, who are again, actively investigating psychedelics by name in the name of alchemy in the name of discovering what they clearly think these earlier alchemists were doing and they think it's a drug, you know? So while I was too skeptical and amazed to find these gems, I was also amazed to find that I'm not the first person to think in these terms. It's, it's almost as though this kind of stuff is just dismissed because they're talking about alchemy. It must be new age kind of frou-frou stuff and and I don't think so. I think this is just the best language that these men were in possession of by which they could express something that caused an experience like that of entheogens. Yeah, I, I listened to your other talk on I think the show was called Conspiranormal and the way you sort of described alchemy was really interesting because I think a lot of people just you know, they have this understanding of it that it's basically were people trying to do some form of magic as chemistry. They didn't know what they were doing. They tried to turn lead into gold. You know, they were essentially dumb. They didn't understand science. It's kind of almost like this prevailing view on it. And uh, you, you sort of described it as it wasn't, you know, the, the, the alchemists who were serious about this actually understood a process where you could dye metals. And so not, not, not maybe that's the wrong word, dye, but you can actually change yeah, the right. color of metals. That's right. Um, it, it, this, this, in a recent book by Shannon Cooper Grimes on um, the Egyptian Gnostic uh, alchemist Zosimos of Panopolis, who was an earlier practitioner of alchemy. He was a student of Maria Prophetissima, or also known as Maria the Jewess, who is considered the the founder of alchemy as such. And um, in his work, you know, he he clearly discusses alchemy in terms of tincturing metals. And this is important in the in Egyptian culture. Um, Salsimus is a, a priest, and his primary concern is making temple statuary and paraphernalia. Well, in these traditions, and it carries on, you'll see it show up in Neoplatonism. Uh, there's this concept of the animation of statues. And this is regularly interpreted as making statues move and talk, which is how you see it interpreted in commentators who talk about the phenomenon and the rites of Mithras or when Proclus allegedly made a Hecate statue talk. It can include that, but that's not what it means. The animation of statue means anima, soul, right? Like in the Jungians, it means soul or psyche. So they're ensouling a statue. They're ensouling it with the essence of whatever deity it represents. So if it's a, a statue to a solar deity, it's important that the metal reflect the solar nature. And this is important because they thought of things in terms of uh, what the later Neoplatonists called, and you see it called in the Chaldean oracles, suthamata, or tokens. 
And this is, uh, you, according to Iamblichus and later Neoplatonists who were claiming to have gotten this from the Egyptian tradition, their line of thinking is that you can construct a physical object so perfectly using all of the right objects, uh, substances in its construction, doing it under the right alignments with the right invocations at the time, using the right incenses, packing it with the right drugs, uh, which Uz Divinis even talks about, they would pack them with pharmaca. Um, but, but if you do all of the right things, the right stones and metals and everything perfect, then it can become such a perfect manifestation, a token of that deity, that it then becomes like a mirror that reflects that the energy of that bat catches it and you can and and enact with it here like enact with enacting with a reflection of the sun in a way um if it's reflected in a mirror so this same notion uh translates into alchemy because what zosimos was concerned with and what they were calling alchemy was the hidden art of the, the how you do this to statues because the animation of statues is the big mystery. That's how you get the God on earth. Um, so the, the means by which you would die this temple statuary was kept secret because that's the means by which gods were manifested in form. Uh, so that's what they're talking about. And you see even in later alchemists and Islamic alchemists, like the polymath Avicenna, where he says, uh, he says, you know, that the true alchemists know that you can't transmutate base metals into other metals. You can't change something from one substance to another substance, but you can change its appearance and make it look like that. So that's where we get this language of tincturing metals. So by the time these texts that record this technology fall into the hands of people who aren't priests, have no knowledge of this kind of Suntamata technology, they have no knowledge of this stuff read the same matter and then the same text and walk away thinking they're turning base metals into gold. They're turning one thing into something else. Uh, and that's where we get this whole notion. Now, by the time uh, alchemy becomes a European phenomenon and it, it encounters, and we go through um, the discovery of alcohol distillation by Raymond Lully, that invites what um, year? When was that about? What roughly? What oh man, is it sixteen hundred? I'm probably going to be wrong. Raymond Lully, I think, was around uh, around the eleventh century. Oh wow! Okay, somewhere around. Okay. Um, so the the distillation of alcohol is discovered, which opens the door for extraction of essences from anything you put in that alcohol. Um, sure. Plant materials mainly, plant material. yeah. And then plant material really becomes the focus by the time we get to Paracelsus, the German phys Swiss physician, Paracelsus. Uh, you'll hear him called Paracelsus. I think Paracelsus is the right pronunciation, but um, he shows up and he introduces um, this technology of spagyria, which is inherently involved with plants. And from here on, we get these alchemy diverges and then we we from now on we have the wet path and the dry path the wet path is this wet work with alcohol um extracting uh, menstruums in plants dry, the dry path being work with minerals metals 
So, but what's interesting is even in the domain of metalwork, in the domain of the dry path, you still see this persistent notion that the source for the prima materia, the means by which the philosopher's stone is produced, is still to be found in the plant kingdom, not in the metal kingdom. So there's there's even even once they've diverged, there's still this inherent um, interest in the the virtues of plants, which is interesting because I I mean until I I read your stuff and and heard you talking about this I I have mostly heard I mean I've watched various documentaries on it I think I even watched a Masonic documentary maybe you've seen it where it sort of has a large section about Newton and the Royal Society. And it talks about how even Newton was trying to figure out the formula to the Philosopher's Stone, but it sort of presents it almost like he was trying to create a, some kind of gemstone, like a literal stone of some kind. It is a stone, though. Once, once you produce these crystalline, alkaline salts from a plant, um, it does appear as a stone. In, in many cases, it looks like... Um, citrine or, or quartz if it's purified enough now it's doubtful that uh, in these early phases that that they were arriving at anything pure and crystalline is something we'd see today which is why part of why we see the persistence of the stone being red in the early days uh, in the later days by the time alchemy becomes chemistry that symbolism switches and you see albedo, the white phase, come to trump the red phase. But in the earliest days, it's negredo, albedo, then rubedo. Because and Young stresses that too, that, that the rubedo comes last because it signifies the final union, the final theosis. With uh, If we're talking about like in yogic terms, it's samadhi. If we're talking about um, in, in Catholic terms, theosis. and pagan Platonic terms, kenosis, but it's this the the final unification that is the result of the mystic pursuit, which alchemy is one manifestation. It's one type of that mystical pursuit. It, it even in the early days, where we're talking about dying metals, they're being dyed dyed for temple purposes. It's a it's inherently spiritual practice in in the minds of its practitioners. And correct me if I'm wrong on this, but it sounds like partly what you're describing as these sort of the way these metals were cast to reflect, it sounds sort of similar to a magic or sort of the magic mirror or crystal gazing stuff that that sort of comes up later in in spiritualism. It's a lot like that. Yeah. I mean, crystal gazing, I I do want to point out you when you bring up crystal gazing, you know, this goes back to, um, Trithemius, who was preoccupied with the notion of getting angels inside stones and metals, trapping them in there, um, so that that blossoms out of that. He was Paracelsus's teacher, you know. So that it's very, it's a lot of significance to what you say, crystal gazing in this context. Fascinating. It grew out of that same tradition. So, I, it seems as though. The earliest examples that you've found of this, and correct me if I'm wrong, is in Egypt in terms of using acacia or having it to do with some kind of ritualistic purpose. Acacia, acacia is present in Egyptian mythology, in Egyptian art. Um, 
it is the tree that in some versions of the Osiris myth that the deity is encased inside. So in a sense, we're saying that the God is in the tree. And you see a, a later stress from Fulcanelli, the alchemist, who stresses that same idea in terms of Christ and this statement that shows up in the Catholic Church, Regna Vit Aligno Deus. Melissino repeats it too. It's his motto, Regna Vit Aligno Deus. God resides in the tree. Maybe a reference to the same thing. I suspect it probably is because they're working with Acacia and they would have known the Osiris myths pertinent to the Acacia. But that being said, Acacia is not referenced in terms of alchemy. Alchemy is this inherently temple statuary problem. But that being said, um, part of this same tradition of color correspondences comes all correspondences, which is literally how the Egyptian mind worked. It was fluid in this way so that if you're familiar with um, Kabbalistic tradition and the way it manifests in the Golden Dawn, where each sephira has this endless stream of correspondences. So like Alistair Crowley said, the tree of life becomes a filing cabinet where in the sephira of Gabira, for example, which is God's severity or strength, it becomes a filing cabinet for the color red, the planet Mars, rubies, tobacco, um, any dragon's blood as a scent. Anything on any plane of experience gets filed away and becomes a mnemonic for that one thing. The whole world was perceived like that for the early Egyptians. When they saw an ibis on the Nile, they were looking at Thoth or Tahuti. They were seeing the God of wisdom in a way. And so when we're talking about these statues and colors and metals having inherent uh, correlations with these deities they're meant to reflect, everything was like this, including the acacia tree, which you see if you look in any. Uh, um, magical grimoire list of correspondences where it appears, it's always it always corresponds to the sun. The acacia is a solar tree, and that comes out of its association with this solar deity who you can't reduce Osiris to just being solar. He's inherently connected to the crops, but crops are inherently connected to the sun and the cycles of the sun and the year and the annual. So um so yeah, the in a in a way, everything is involved in alchemy because of this notion of correspondence. It's because the world becomes this Mendelbrot-like series of disco ball fractals that reflects everything around and contains everything in its own way and um, very uh, paradoxical worldview. But that's the fluid world that the magical all magical experience exists within that you have to enter to, to get these kind of results. But so, yes, you know, the, the acacia does show up in Egyptian uh, mythology and lots of Egyptian art. You'll see it in uh, coffins and uh, the, um, the uh, sarcophagi on the walls that it'll often be depicted. Um, but no, it doesn't show up directly referenced as being um, a, a substance from which a drug was extracted outside of one particular myth I found, which is um, about these two brothers named Anpu and Bata, who are clearly a version of Osiris and Typhon. Typhon being 
Osiris's brother and arch enemy who kills Osiris when he goes through his trip in the underworld. He's the deity who traps Osiris inside the acacia tree. In this myth, the one that signifies Osiris is killed, and his but his heart is placed inside of the blossom of an acacia tree. The acacia tree is then chopped down and beers are made from it and they drink it and somehow commune with the spirit of this dead brother. Uh, and, and it's, it, and again, this is a, a there's different um, translations and interpretations of what's happening in this myth and what's happening after they drink it is kind of confusing. Um, but what is not confusing is the fact that the heart is placed in the tree. The tree is chopped down, just like in the acacia myth, and then drank. So we do have some weird stuff like that. And we also have examples that um, Chris Bennett in his uh, magnum opus, Libra 420, um, the subtitle is uh, Cannabis, Magical Herbs, and the Occult. He points out recipes. Um, for beers or wines infused with cannabis that Zosimos discusses, talks about. So uh, we know that he was doing stuff with alchemy, what we would call alchemy. If we're going to, if what we're dis describing and calling alchemy in terms of plants is the infusion of those plants and extraction of their essences into an alcoholic substance, such as wine or beer, then his alchemy also concerns plants and their obvious correspondences or um, uh, as uh, what, I, what they call synthemata in, uh, in Neoplatonism, tokens. And I heard you say that um, that's, that the earliest cannabis edibles kind of come from what we know about Egypt. Well, the, there are early Egyptian cannabis edibles called Dawamesk and Majun, which are, they're still made to this day. Um, when you get into, when you meet modern cannabis connoisseurs, a lot of them like to reproduce those um, along with what's called bong or bang, um, which is a uh, Indian and uh, Far Eastern and in, in some areas in the Middle East, a, a beverage that's made from uh, milk and uh, seed spices coriander seeds all kind of different things go into it but it's a, um, a cannabis milkshake essentially so that's another another early one and these are these are substances that uh, where i mentioned this is in regard to the royal society and robert boyle who is the uh, the first chemist uh, but was also um, interested in alchemy and may have been a practicing alchemist along with many of the other Royal Society members who were investigating the same territory. But, but one of the things he's invested in finding in, uh, in this document that's, uh, that uh, the, the Royal Society put on display in 2010 called Boyle's Wish List, where he's actively seeking out hallucinogenic drugs, anything that will cause epileptic fits, pleasing dreams, and uh, all kinds of drugs. But he specifically says that he wants the Egyptian electuaries. And uh, Chris Bennett 
Um, he's the one that speculates, and I agree with him. I think he's right that this is in reference to uh, the hashish electuaries. Um, electuary is a, a, a term that comes up in reference to anything that's made sweet to get down a bitter drug or a drug that's not sweet. I see. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that that letter is really mind blowing, and I'm assuming that you didn't discover that until after alchemically stone, right? Because that, right. I mean, that is that is pretty wild to see someone from the Royal Society who basically is the godfather of chemistry saying, I want hallucinogenic drugs. <laughs> and he's saying this after Ashmole brings to his attention this red stone that John Dee and Edward Kelly were allegedly in possession of that they believed induced their ability to not only see, but communicate with angels. And if you recall in the first book, you know, I speculate based on the fact that uh, the evidence that Dr. David Harrison puts forth that um, the changes that took place to the Master Mason degree, as we know it, those were instigated by two men, um, James Anderson and John de Sagoulier, John Theophilus de Sagoulier, who was the third Grand Master of the Premier Grand Lodge in London. He's the one who I suspect and pointed out in the first book that I suspected put the acacia in the master mason degree, because before that there was no acacia in the degree. There was only a reference to a sprig of cassia, uh, which is a cinnamon like plant from southern China. Uh, but it was in the Egyptian rites degree by Cogliostro. Later, Cogliostro wasn't an early mason. These are the early degrees from the 17. 17 is when it was founded. Oh, so he, this guy put the Akashia in before Cagliostro's. That's you're... right. Oh, wow. Um, okay. So Cagliostro is using it in already in an entheogenic context. Like here it is. He tells the candidate, what you're drinking is Acacia. This is the primal matter. And what you were shown the Acacia and in the regular ordinary degree of Master Mason is nothing but what you're drinking. So when he said it's only that, He's talking about the version of the ritual that came after De Sagulier, whatever De Sagulier did to it. So when De Sagulier did this, did he do it because it was entheogenic? And that's why Cagliostro already knew because this was just unsaid, but Cagliostro was being like blatant about it. Wow. See, okay, I had it the other way around. So so where do you believe De Sagulier uh, decided to put this into the master mason degree well whoever made the change it happened virtually overnight and okay. it happened after he became grandmaster we know that whoever made this change and we know it was a change because every expose before him says cassian every expose in europe after him says acacia so why would he do that uh that's the the the, the wall that i ran into in the first book but we, we know that whoever made this change would have had to have been powerful enough to make it. He's a grandmaster. That's as powerful as you get. And as Dr. David Harrison points out, he's the one who made these changes. So we know that he did it. Why would he did it? Why would he have done it? How could he have known? What was his motive? So we go back and to the Royal Society where we find that Desagulier is the research assistant to Sir Isaac Newton. 
Isaac Newton, we know is a practicing alchemist, like you mentioned earlier. Uh, they discovered in 2016 a recipe for the Philosopher's Stone written by uh, a guy named George Starkey, an American alchemist, that was reproduced in Newton's own hand that he was clearly writing down for some reason. We know that de Sagulier was a practicing alchemist because we know that uh, the Duke of Shandos wrote him a letter asking him to use his alchemical knowledge to go and persuade this other alchemist named Baron Silberg who had figured out, allegedly had figured out how to transmutate base metals into gold using quicksilver. So all these guys are alchemists. Ashmole, who was one of the earliest speculative Freemasons and a member of the Royal Society, his the two books he published, Fascaculus Chemicus and Theatricum Chemicum Britannicum, uh, both of them concern alchemy. Uh, the first one being by Arthur D., a publication he republished by Arthur D., who was John D.'s only surviving son. Then um, the second one being a collection of uh, alchemical poems in the English language, which includes a poem called Edward Kelly's Work that is specifically about uh, extracting plants, extracting drugs from plants, if you know how to read it. Elias Ashmole's book uh, that you're talking about, the Botanicum one, that was, is it true that that was one of the more popular books that, that people gravitated towards to Absolutely. learn about alchemy? Okay. Absolutely. And it, it still is. Um, I guess let's go back. Tell, tell us about John D and Edward Kelly, because they seem really extremely important in this and they came before Ashmole. So what, what was their contribution? So John D was, uh, he was the personal advisor and astrologer to Queen Elizabeth I, who herself was an alchemist and, and interested in alchemy, um, allegedly. Uh, but Dee is interested in communicating with angels. Now, his reasons for wanting to communicate with them always seem to boil down to uh, the fact that he ascribes to this notion that each angel rules over a portion of the heavens that if you follow that portion down touches a portion of the earth so each angel basically rules a country like a saint patron oh. so he had this idea that uh and you see the same notion repeated by mckenna later in terms of psychedelics mckenna and another early psychedelic an earlier psychedelic author but he d has this idea that telescopes give you the perception of things far away microscopes can give you a perception of things tiny make them bigger magic crystals gave you the appeared the ability to see things right here that were unseen in the same way that those things allowed you to see things that were unseen by the naked eye so in his earlier works, you see this uh, notion show up that he believes that based on the degree at which the light hits it, hits the stone, sort of dictates what angel you can talk to through it. But he never had any success communicating with any of these angels. And uh, he was in the habit of hiring seers, personal seers or scryers to do this for him but he was never satisfied with them. And, uh, and this is where Ed, the, a man named Sir Edward Kelly comes in, who was uh, considered a charlatan. He had had his ears cropped uh, for the crime of coining, which is making 
gold and silver coins with metals that aren't gold and silver. Very alchemical problem. The very, it's a very problem that alchemy was later outlawed and derided because it was seen as a, a charlatan's endeavor. But uh, what does is, what is having your ears crop mean? I've never heard that term before. His ears cut off. No that shit. The, punish, the punishment for wow. his crime. So, and he would wear this hat to keep that covered. Oh my God. But anybody who you would see walking around with their ears cut off in that way, let you know instantly that's a shyster and that he's going to try and get something over on you. You Just stay away from him. Wow. So when Kelly comes up offering his services, Dee sees this man with no ears, you know, instantly realizing this is probably a charlatan, but he's so successful at the, communication with these angels he can see them he can talk to them that d is completely overwhelmed and by that and focuses on little else and for the next seven years he convinces him to do this daily seance kind of ritual with him and kelly is protesting the entire time you can tell he's he hates it you know he's exhausted it goes on hours and hours and hours but the reason he persists is because in most of the treatments of Dee and Kelly, you're given the impression that, that Dee needs Kelly, and he does for the visions. But it was Kelly who sought Dee out. That's how they met, because Kelly had come into possession of this alchemical manuscript he couldn't read called the Book of Dunstan. And this Why couldn't he read it? It was in a cipher. Oh, interesting. Is this and book still around today? No, no. There are books that are written in Dunstan's name. You can get, the, you can read about uh, pseudo Dunstan is what they'll sometimes be called. Okay. The author. Uh, but no, the book, the book itself is not extant and uh, it may have never existed. Who knows? But he claimed to have had this book and claimed to have not been able to read it. And uh, that's why he's gotten D is because along with this book, he has this mysterious red powder that he says is the philosopher's stone. He believes that this manuscript not only tells you how to make more of it, but it tells you how to use it because he doesn't even really know how to use it completely uh, to produce uh, immortality in the form of an elixir or an incense or the production of gold from base metals, which is the two purported things the Philosopher's Stone is supposed to provide to its possessor. Can I read something from your your post really quick? That And this was really interesting to me, is that it says that the powder, and I don't know which one of these men wrote this, so you'll have to tell me, that the powder increased intensity of vibrations which transforms them and makes them spiritual the secret of the philosopher's stone enabled a man's soul to attain unity with the divine spirit is that a quote from one of them that's or? not from me or kelly that's from uh, a later alchemist explaining what they are doing what they're thinking this is interesting i mean because that just in and of itself the intensity of vibrations just sounds like something very you know key to a a psychedelic experience or it does yeah all of it sounds very psychedelic and that's that's one of the things that will strike you reading throughout the, the literature is it's it's very psychedelic essence so we have here someone describing 
the philosopher's stone basically being a red powder. That's right. And, and, uh, and he wants to, to make more of it. And we know from these diaries that, uh, that they're concerned with gold. That is one of his things. And one of the, the ways he convinces D to help him in this endeavor is he says, well, well, when we got it, I got it from this spiritual creature. This uh, angel basically led me to it and told me that I was supposed to come find you and that uh-huh. you would then decipher it for me and that the contents of it tells where the Danes buried a bunch of treasure. <laughs> so he's like, you know, go, let's, let's go. And you can tell even in his inquiries to these angels, he's consistently concerned with trivial things like that seem trivial to us. But when you consider the fact that he's working for Queen Elizabeth and trying to, trying to get in her good graces repeatedly because he's failing over and over and his, he, could, he can't talk to the angels. You know, he can't, he's not able to use his magic in a way that is uh, helpful to the empire. Right. So that's really where this comes about. There's this red powder. Now we don't know. A, we don't know if, what that powder was. We don't know if it was a drug. We can't know. We don't know um, how Kelly was using it. If he was using it. We don't know what the results of that use would look like. All of that is irrelevant from a historical perspective because we can't know that stuff. What we do know is that Ashmole, Elias Ashmole, was John Dee's biographer, and he believed it was a drug. He believed that the reason he couldn't get Dee's system to work after inheriting all the papers and putting the system to the test the reason he couldn't get that final revelation of the angel was because he lacked Kelly's powder. So, and this wasn't an isolated notion. You see there's uh, fiction accounts from like Gustav Mayrink. He tells a story of, uh, it's a fictional account, but he's using D and Kelly's thing. And he describes the same red powder and says that it's an incense, that when you burn it as an incense, it causes visions of, of uh, heaven or of angels of your, he says your female counterpart, which is a very kind of Jungian uh, interpretation of the experience. Uh, but um, so yeah, the, Ashmole believes it's a drug. And when he comes to Boyle and says, look, I know you're interested in talking to angels. And a lot of people don't know this about Boyle because he's remembered as being the first chemist. He's thought of as being the, the scientific guy. But if you go read his paper on, it's called something like the problem of the angelical stone and communication with angels. He's talking about it. He's saying, you know, what is this? How can it be that there's a physical substance that is no more important in terms of its corporality than powder from a piece of brick? What is it about this substance that that angels delight to hover about it, he says. You know, I don't understand. And it's it's at that point that they both kind of agree, well, it must be a drug. If it's something, it's a physical substance, and you can use it to communicate with angels and see angels, then we should probably be looking for a drug. And that's when Boyle issues his his wish list to everyone saying, all right, let's go find all the drugs, bring all the drugs back and let's solve this problem of the stone. Right. And just so people who are listening know, who don't know anything about Freemasonry, Elias Ashmole is one of the first ever known people to be in 
speculative masonry. Right. Speculative as opposed to operative. Correct. So when masonry originally emerges, it's a medieval stonemasons guild that is operative, meaning that it builds things, houses, churches, um, for whatever reason, by the time of Ashmole, they started mitting men who are not operative, who have no history in building. In fact, their, their proclivity seems to be alchemy, philosophy, hermetism, uh, early chemistry. It seems to be that, that caliber of person that attracts them. So masonry makes this inexplicable trans translation transformation to uh what's now called a speculative um, and in philosophical terms speculative meaning uh, speculating on uh ideas that aren't necessarily corporal dealing with things that are outside of uh, the physical now of course we deal with those concepts through the physical through ritual but all of those ritual motions and allegories are outer vestiges sort of the of this inner these inner ideas essences with which it's concerned but yeah so it becomes a, a quote-unquote speculative um organization by the time of ashmole another one is uh another alchemist who was made an early mason. He was under uh, Stuart, I think. Um, I can't remember. He, he was in the Royal Society. His name's escaping me. Robert Murray, Sir Robert Murray, another early speculative Freemason, but no connection to anything other than science and alchemy. Sure. And I guess explain a little bit of where where this went after Elias Ashmole sort of believed that this was a drug that Dee and Kelly were discussing, he brought this to Robert Boyle's attention. And Boyle was already investigating. Yeah, as you said, he's... He, well, in addition to this, he was already trying to find another red powder that this other alchemist named Wenzel Saylor had apparently had. And, and Boyle's already trying to find this. So when Ashmole comes and brings this to his attention, he's like, oh, well, I wonder if this is the same thing. And around this time, they get a letter from another member of the Royal Society named George Adge, who says, I know you're looking into this red powder. Well, because of the wish list, everybody knows who's a member. And he's like, well, I know you're looking for the red powder, but I have to tell you, when Wenzel Saylor, his whole story about where he got it is bullshit. That The true story is, he got it from a guy who got it from the palace of um, in Prague. Well, that's where Kelly served as court alchemist to Rudolph. Wow. So the final revelation that I think made it click for Boyle is this is the same powder. So where does Elias Ashmole's knowledge of Columbus uh, mentioning Yopo or is that how you pronounce so it? Yopo is- come from? So this, the, the question now becomes, okay, they're looking for psychedelics. He says he's looking for Egyptian hashish stuff. He says he's looking for, another thing he mentions is the, the fungus mentioned by the French author. <laughs> I'm looking for a magic mushroom. Um, the French author who, again, uh, Chris Bennett is the one who 
uh, postulates that he's referring to the alchemist Rabelais, who talks about an agaric mushroom in what appears to be an entheogenic context, agaric being uh, the family from which fly agaric comes, which is Amanita muscaria. So he's like the Royal Society is likely looking for Amanita muscaria. So how do we go from them looking for all of these drugs to specifically acacia? Where do they come up and just pull that out of nowhere? And that's where Christopher Columbus, of all people, enters this problem. So one of the things with which the early Royal Society and the current Royal Society is still concerned with is cartography. Um, maps that are genuine, that genuinely reflect the territory they're meant to reflect. This was a, a real problem back then because you had to, you had to count on um, explorers to go around and give you these maps. Uh, this was still happening by the time of uh, Christopher Columbus. He's exploring South America. They have these documents in their possession. And in Christopher Columbus's accounts, he specifically mentions that when he went to South America, he encountered these natives that had these long tubes and were blowing a reddish colored powder up one another's nostrils. And this powder, now he's talking about yopo, um, which is also called a pena. It's a, a, a snuff that contains DMT that through its combination with calcium carbonate that's produced from the calcination of shells from crustaceans, they produce this calcium carbonate like lime that, or, that can render this DMT absorbable by the mucous membranes in the nasal cavity. So they're snuffing. So unlike ayahuasca, which lasts about you know four to six hours, Yopo lasts probably 20 minutes. So it's more closer. It seems like it more closely resembles a smoked DMT experience yeah. compared to yeah. ayahuasca, which is very fascinating. I think you also mentioned that it doesn't just contain DMT. There's also concoctions that might contain 5-MeO-DMT, might contain uh, bufotenine. bufotenine. Yeah, bufotenine. Yeah. And that, so that's that's those are present in these trees that they – the natives are preparing these from. Now, they're not preparing them from acacia trees. They prepare yopo from the seeds of anadenanthera colubrina and anadenanthera peregrina trees. But if you're not a botanist, you cannot tell the difference in that from a acacia or a mimosa. They are so, excuse me, similar. I can't tell them apart um, outside of close study. And at the time, there was not a botanical distinction between them. It was interpreted on up until the 19th century. It was believed to be a species of acacia. And you see this in the writings of Avon Humboldt, where he discusses watching the Maypure Indians do this in Orinoco, uh, using the, the same seed pods for yopo, but he identifies the tree as acacia neopo. So Nyopo being in hash Yopo, in hyphen Yopo. So he's saying, he's identifying the tree, which uh, this was, he didn't invent this. This, the identification of these trees as acacia was uh, already present at the time of the Royal Society. He's just still harping on that, right? Avon Humboldt. Uh, now later, 
classifications crept in, like we see with mimosa, mimosa hostilis, the most powerful source of DMT in a plant. Which looks like when you take the root bark and crush it into a powder, it can look dark red or almost purplish. If you extract it primitively and you don't get all those uh, matter out, it's still red. It stays red, orange, purple. But but this... uh, they they look they're identical and the mimosa hostilis um, looks just like acacia so much that mimosa hostilis is a new classification. It used to be called acacia tenuiflora. Oh, fascinating! So even mimosa was acacia. All of these were thought to be acacia because acacia. When Dioscorides named acacia, he named it after its most defining characteristic, which was acacias or thorns. So acacia means thorned. So these trees that have these prominent thorns on them that are also possessed of this bipinnate compound leaf structure that also put out these legume seed pods, all of those were originally types of acacia that have now become their own families. So when, when they're encountering Columbus identifying the use of this yopo, in their minds, this is acacia. And that's probably, I mean, I assume, and, uh, you know, I, I, I welcome any other uh, research in this territory because this is, um, it's so few and far between. Like you pointed out earlier, the, the, the sheer um, girth of some of these discoveries in light of how sparse they are is, uh, is pretty staggering. But it's a clear indication that, yes, they're looking at psychedelics. Yes, they knew about Yopo. Yes, they thought that it came from an acacia tree. And then all of a sudden, one of the Royal Society members who's in the middle of this whole hotbed of research gets elected grandmaster and says, let's make all these changes to this degree. And we're going to put this, this plant there all of the sudden. I think we're arriving at a solution. I think we're arriving at uh, a clear solution to the problem of how and why Cagliostro and Melissino can pop up in the middle of the 18th century and say, all that acacia that you saw when you became an ordinary Mason, that's this, and it's psychedelic. You know, they're not inventing this out of nowhere. I think they're taking something that was in the tradition, but probably unsaid. It was almost like if you solve this problem on your own, you're given the keys to the kingdom and you can walk in that door in a way. Um, but Cagliostro is like, no, you know, let's bring it out in the open. And everybody who becomes a Mason from now on, let's give them this and show them this. And I think his reasoning for that was that these early men doing this, they, they didn't have a concept of drugs. They didn't have a concept of a war on drugs. There was no um, uh, prejudices about drugs. There was also no real... Um, notion among the intelligentsia outside of this research into psychedelics we saw at the Royal Society that drugs could cause religious epiphanies and visions and revelations and things of a philosophical religious bearing. So I really think that when they were experiencing this, they really believed they were experiencing something on par with the revelation of John of Patmos or Ezekiel or Daniel. And, and the reason for saying, let's give this to everyone in their initiation 
I think has something to do with the transition that you see in these these mystical societies, secret societies of the transition from faith or pistis to gnosis or knowledge. The transition from taking all of this stuff, this these religious things we're asked to accept at face value, instead of taking that on faith, let's throw you in the deep end, give you a full experience of, of what's possible, what's out there, and then let's work forward with no questions of, well, is any of this actually doing anything? What's the pr- purpose of all these rituals? You know? Yeah. It's almost like giving you your own firsthand experience, which is something that very few spiritual teachings could do with you in basically an instant. So it's quite a powerful notion. I agree. And you met, you touched on something I wanted to ask you about this idea that people back then maybe started to have this understanding that by consuming an intoxicating substance, that you could actually commune directly with spirits. Was this, did people already during this time period, like the mid 17, or I guess this is before the 1700s, right? The late 1600s. Did they have any idea back then that Soma was, was even a, a key part of Hinduism? Did they, was there anybody aware of that at the time or did that come much this, later? This idea of plants and spirit communion through plants and the power of plants, the power of nature, uh, Indigenous communities have always known this. Sure. It's the divorce that takes place when when we wall ourselves up in intellect and decide this that there that Gnostic dualism is true and that intellect is somehow better than matter, and it causes this Gnostic um, rejection of nature and says, "Well, if there is anything spiritual, it has to be acquired through." a man-made meditation or a man-made ritual or something through man because man is the conduit for deity. It completely outsteps this notion of nature as theophany, of nature as a revelation of anything other than ignorance and disorder, which is fallacious. It's a it's a completely outmoded way to think, but I think, uh, I suspect that that's probably one of the underlying motives uh, for the promotion of this substance was that uh, um, it, it demonstrated that division, that, that dichotomy without demonizing nature. And it's, it still maintained the sanctity of nature, which is very, uh, a, a very, uh, you see that in Rosicrucianism. Like you'll, a lot of modern Rosicrucian trends is to uh, associate it with Gnosticism as though they're saying that, the, that they're both mystical components of Christianity, they both must be the same thing because they're side B of side A, which is revealed Christianity. That's not at all the case. These are very independent, different traditions. There are many forms of Gnosticism, but one of the things that Rosicrucian, the Rosicrucian tradition inherently distances itself from is this notion of, of matter as a prison. Uh, the notion, like you see in Plato's Timaeus, that uh, that the body is a prison. You know, Plato did say that, but he also said in Phaedo, he gives the notion that it's the very means by which that spirit has expression. So inherent in Plato is this notion of graded teachings where, you know, the first, at first you have to acknowledge that you're in a prison to get out of prison. But once you're out, there's no sense in deriding all of matter. At that point, it's on to the revelation of theophany. So I think I think all of those notions are wrapped up with 
what was taking place and and why it seems so alien to us now. You know, the the idea that you can get wisdom from a plant, encounter spirits from a plant or from a substance. But um, but really, what's what's strange to me is the notion that you could encounter spirits without a plant or without a body, without some kind of corporal carrier that is the means by which that spirit finds expression. Uh, the, the plant, the, the ritual, all of these things are, are just like those Egyptian statues. They're suntamata that are constructed in such a perfect way that they catch a ray of this thing that we're trying to commune with by interacting with it, by taking it, by doing it, you know. That makes sense. I don't know. I'm thinking way it out does, there. It does. It's fascinating stuff. I just, I guess, so the next thing that happens, and you've already touched on this, but it seems like a really pivotal moment in all this is the sort of after Acacia is adopted as part of the Masonic ritual, Melisino and Cogliostro actually write down, and Cogliostro writes it down in such a ridiculous way, in my opinion, that it's undeniable. Uh, mm-hmm. What he's talking about, and I, I don't know if you if you if you've memorized what he says, but he starts by saying something like the acacia is the primal matter. And what else does he say there that that sounds a lot like he's talking about DMT crystals? <laughs> I mean, well, he he he's saying that the acacia is the primal matter that was created by God and given to man so that he could be immortal. And when we say be immortal, we're not talking about physical immortality. And these guys knew that. They, they knew they weren't going to live forever. And yet they're saying this stuff in this ritual. That's not what they're talking about. They're talking about, if you've ever read the, the mythologist Joseph Campbell, in his book, Hero with a Thousand Faces, he makes the statement that the elixir of immortality, it doesn't make you live forever. It induces a state where you realize your immortality, where you realize you already that this is it. The moment is eternal that you already exist on this plane of eternity somehow, that we divorce ourselves from that to experience just everyday little stuff, which is just as miraculous, but it's no less true, right? That this other level of truth exists. So when he says man possessed it to be immortal, to realize his immortality, to enter a state where he could be, enter into eternity, but he abused it, and lost it. And it says that, you know, that basically deity took that away from Adam, but that it has always existed in the hands of the elect of God. Now that's specific energy. When we talk about the, I mean, language, when we talk about the elect of God, elect for these men, because they were members of this tradition, refers to the elect, the Elu, the Elu Cohen, which is uh, an early Masonic system of theurgy created by a guy named Martinez de Pascali, which eventually became what we now know as Martinism. Um, but uh, so when he says that it, it existed in the hands of the elect of God, uh, he's saying that there is a hidden tradition of people who still know about this. And he obviously identifying himself as one of those people in the Masonic fraternity, particularly his Egyptian manifestation of that. But then he says that that through a particular alchemical operation, you can extract or produce from this primal matter a stone that he then, because it's we're, we're talking about masonry, and in masonry, 
there's uh, already inherent imagery about a stone, which is in reference to the ashlar. So the rough ashlar versus the perfect ashlar. When you become a mason, you are represented as the rough ashlar, which is not formed. You're a piece of stone taken from the quarry. Uh, all the edges are rough. Nothing's been smoothed. You're not educated. Um, that's the symbolic state. But through masonry, through that art, you perfect the ashlar and make it cubical. So he's using the same imagery to discuss extracting the stone. And he says that, you know, that we're, we're taking away, in masonry, we're given, for example, the common gavel, which is the, the hammer by which all of these rough edges are knocked off of this gavel. This, this gavel exists to divest ourselves of superfluities. That's the same language he uses to say, we're divesting this stone of its superfluities. That is all the other parts of the plant, all everything that's not the DMT, getting rid of the rest of the acacia. And this is what remains. And then he says that, that Hiram, he then says Hiram, the, the allegorical figure under whom, above whom the acacia is planted in the, in the ritual, in the allegory. He says that, he goes on to, to consubstantiate Hiram with the cicatrice, saying that they're the same thing, and that when Hiram was slain by the three workmen, which is part of that allegory, that the blood that fell out of his body is this liquid that you just drank. And then he says that, uh, he tells him that, he, that the drinking of it will raise his spirit in order to understand what he's about to say to him. And then he goes on to give this lecture about the immortality of the soul, which is what, um, what the acacia is said to represent in Freemasonry. They say it signifies um, uh, the immortality of the soul, uh, which I always thought from the very beginning was very, very fitting insofar as if you ascribe to the notion that is, is inducing an out-of-body experience, then it's providing a glimpse or temporary proof of the reality of the immortality of the soul. It's super fascinating to me because just this passage alone from the Egyptian rite is so striking in of itself. I mean, he talks about a cubical stone, alkaloid universal salt, which is... He said he calls it a salt. I mean, yeah. that's pretty unmistakable. And... That I mean, what he's describing sounds very close to an, some kind of extraction of crystallized DMT. We know we know that it's an extraction by the time we get to Melusina because he's so much clearer with what he's describing. He actually tells the candidate the method by which it's extracted, not just that it was extracted. And that's where we even get the technique used, which goes all the way back to Paracelsus again, full circle. Okay, I didn't. I I got that mixed up too. I didn't realize that that was the case. But I guess what I'm asking you is, were you the first one to see this and think this is obviously describing some kind of ritualistic drug extraction and consumption, or had there as been other? I, I I I searched everything I could find. Um, I wrote to every person in authority of. Uh, Every Masonic organization you can think of, um, nothing, absolutely no indication. In fact, what I mostly ran up against was, you are fucking crazy. That is not what's going on. You're looking, barking up the wrong tree. 
So no, I don't think, you know, that's no one that had ever published on it that I could find. And I could find no one talking about it that hadn't published on it either. Um, but that being said, when I did bring it to the attention of Arturo de Hoyos, who is the grand archivist and grand historian of the Scottish Rite, he immediately was, he was probably the first person that I would, you would call in authority in a, in a Masonic organization who didn't immediately reject what I was saying and said, wait a minute, there might be something to what you're saying. Wow. And, uh, and I didn't hear back from him for months. Uh, and that's about the first time I published my first paper. I hadn't written the book yet. I just wow. wrote a paper on how I thought, how interesting that it's supposed to be about the immortality of the soul. And yet it contains a substance that can induce the apparent experience of that. That's all the first paper was about. That's so absolutely incredible. And he is in the meantime, in the process of translating the Melusina ritual for the Grand College of Rites. Wow. So the, while we're, we had talked, he's already translating this, but hadn't gotten to the part that we're talking about. So no way. That's so, that's such crazy serendipitous. Yeah. I mean, wow. And he, and he contacts me and he says, PD, uh, I just translated this portion of this ritual. It hadn't been published yet, but I think. He's talking about the same thing you're talking about with Cagliostro. And not only that, when Cagliostro was in Russia, Melusina was his contact and they were hanging out, spending wow. time with each other. So he sends it to me and I'm like, my jaw, I can't pick up my jaw off the floor to type. Like it is the clearest example, even clearer than the Cagliostro, in my opinion. And it predates the Cagliostro reference because it's from 1762. Tell us a little bit about why it's clear. I don't remember exactly what, what was it about that, that. Well, he says the same thing that Cagliostro says, that this is the primal matter. And from it, we produce the philosopher's stone, but then he goes on to say, he tells them how to make it. And the way that he describes it is uh, there's a, there's a text in alchemy called Mutus Liber, the mute book. That's a series of pictures of these individuals who are taking these wet towels or sheets, they're laying them out to catch dew and then wringing them out. And uh, the explanation given to this text by um, two alchemists, by alchemical superiors, when you're in a tradition being taught how to do this. So the, if we're going to say how, how would they have extracted this stuff before alcohol was known about, for example? Or without alcohol, how would they have done this? This is how. And this is what Melusina is talking about. You produce a substance called lixivium. And lixivium is made by calcinating, meaning burning to a white ash, a ton of plant material. And then from this, even after you reduce this entire plant to ashes, it's gone. You just have ash. Still inside this ash is a soluble salt that can be extracted into water. This soluble salt is, is a, a base, incredibly strong base. So they're extra, they filter out the ashes and what's left suspended in this water is those soluble salts. And through different techniques, you can get those salts out. So those salts by themselves are a type of plant salt, not the kind of salt Cagliostro is talking about because he's talking about alkaloid salt, alchemical salt, right? That's extracted from a, a 
from the plant. This comes from a plant too, but it's coming from the ashes of the plant. And it produces, once you, there's two ways to do it. You can add water to it, or the traditional way is leaching. And they would set these crystals out in May when the dew was at its highest. And through the moisture in the air, these crystals turn into liquid. And that's its most potent form because you haven't diluted it with water. It's only gotten enough water to, to what's called deliquesce itself. That's what they would stack up and build more and more of this until they got enough to put a plant matter in that. And that's what they would use to extract these substances. When you get onto a modern DMT tank, the ones that aren't using an acid, they're using a base. They're going for a pH of 12 or 14 in some cases to get the same effect. This is how they arrived at it without chemistry, without litmus paper, you know. So this substance is what Melisino is talking about. And then he goes on to say that this substance alone is nothing. It can do nothing. And the, the reason being, because once you've extracted the DMT into that substance, once you put acacia into it and then filtered it out, You've got the DMT suspended in that, but it's in a caustic solution like bleach. You can't drink it. <laughs> yeah. Well, how do you get it out? Well, that's where paracelsus's technique called the primum ends comes in, which means primum, pre, the first entity of a plant. He believes he's getting the plant's soul this way. So on top of this lixivium solution, you pour a, what in alchemy, they call it a magnet, but it's a nonpolar solvent. And it could be alcohol, it could be vegetable oil. Preferably, you want a nonpolar solvent that evaporates clean so that when it evaporates, it leaves nothing but the clean DMT crystals. Now, in modern texts, they use naphtha, lighter fluid, which is a nonpolar solvent. It, and the way it works, it sits. So when you pour it on top, it sits just like oil and water. They call it a magnet because it pulls all of those DMT alkaloids into that solution. Mm -hmm. So you'll turn it, you know, slowly, it'll build up pressure. You don't shake it, but you turn it, you know, burp it, turn it. And as those oils run through the lixivium, it catches the DMT and holds it. Now you, through a separation funnel, you can siphon it on the top, but you take that solution, put it on a Petri dish and allow it to evaporate. And that's how you get in modern text, pure, DMT crystals and paracelsus's primum ends technique. This is how you get the first entity of a plant. So paracelsus taught the means by which he taught to do this in his literature was through lemon balm, Melissa, a benign plant that uh, in most books of correspondences, it corresponds to the planet Jupiter, which uh, allegedly has uh, fortuitous energies, gain, you know, benefaction, that kind of thing but it's not entheogenic, but that's what he used to teach this method. Now, when you use this because of the alkaloids in lemon balm, they are stark green. You can do this with other plants. It won't be green like this. It's not just the chlorophyll. It's something about lemon balm. And I think he did that because the color change really demonstrates the exchange that's happening. But, but so you, you, excuse me, the magnet pulls those into it, the alkaloids into it. Melisino, what he's specifically saying is 
this this solution alone that we've got the salts dissolved in that alone we can do nothing with it we need to get it out he said and that's where the other half of this problem comes in which he calls the green foam or the green sea of the philosophers that floats on top of it which is the same the language he's using so he's giving you an impression of what he calls the green sea of the philosophers that floats on top like sea foam floats on the sea and that's our drug that's where it's at where you get it now Later alchemists running with the same tradition, using the same prima mens technique and likely using acacia like we have in the Rosicrucian order, where uh, in the, the practicus lecture, well, practicus grade is specifically about laboratory alchemy. And you're told that how to take this specific caustic solution, how to take what they call a courageous dragon, red and warlike, that's the roots, the acacia, how to macerate this lion and infuse him into this and that that it then you can extract the stone out of it by pouring the other solution on top the, it's given step by step in the degree now that step by step is just the premium in step by step but by applying a red coloration to it we've transitioned from lemon balm to some other unnamed substance it's red but all of a sudden now fits and corresponds with this linear transmission that we've been looking at of a red stone, this red substance that can be made into an elixir. And I guess one thing that kept coming up for me through this was, and I don't think this comes up into your second book, and, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but in these in the Egyptian rite, in these descriptions of this stuff that sounds like it's DMT, this red powder, going back to what we talked about earlier, you know, traditionally speaking, you can't, you know, consume DMT by itself. You can't ingest DMT by itself and have a trip. Now, I think you you sort of discuss in Alchemically Stoned how in certain instances, if you consume enough, you can. But then there's the other possibility here that perhaps they had discovered maybe even smoking it and maybe not directly well, written it Melisino, down. Melisino is not talking about drinking at the... Nope. The next thing he says after this whole extraction technique, he explains the next thing he's, he compares it to, he says, this is the burning coal yes. from the book of Isaiah. So in the book of Isaiah, a burning coal is placed to his lips before he goes to heaven. So he's saying that this burning coal that we have is that burning coal. So the implication is that it's being burned and Smoke. I mean, most biblical scholars don't read it this way, but I mean, I know when I'm putting a coal to my lips, I'm smoking a roach nine times out of ten. I mean, I'm smoking something. You don't put coals to your lips. I don't think he was blistering his mouth. I don't think he was eating the coal. It just says the angel put the coal to his lips and Isaiah ascended. And he says, uh, um, what he says after that, uh, is language that is again borrowed and shows up in Masonic literature where he, he talks about the uh, innocence and freedom from sin. So after the, the angel puts this to his lips, he says, you're free, free from sin. And in Melisino's ritual, he says the same thing. Thy sin has been purged. Thine iniquity has been purged. You're now innocent. Well, the definition given for acacia, in addition to it's being said to correspond to 
immortality, the definition given is innocence, not sinful. You know, that's where that comes from. Now, the that interpretation comes from misreading of the word. Remember, we said acacia comes from akaki, which means thorns. But if you break that down in Greek, akakia, a, a, or not, kakia, kakios, meaning evil, bad. Acacia, therefore, also through a false etymology means not bad, not evil, or innocent, or sinless. So even in the Isaiah verse, and he says, you know, that sin is purged. Innocence. He's saying innocence. He's saying akakios, you know, which would be the Greek transliteration of the same Hebrew phrase that shows up. But that's how these kind of traditions leak in through false etymologies and correspondences and, and, and linguistic charades. It seems like it would have been perfectly possible for someone back then to manage to be able to smoke DMT salt crystals. You know, instead of what's commonly done today, which is most most DMT preparations are turned into a base, uh, you know, it's free base. Uh, but you can technically, you know, with a high enough melting point, uh, smoke uh, salt DMT. And I would imagine these alchemists who had been melting metals and stuff probably were very easily able to create a heat source that, you know, could melt down a salt. There are a number of problems that uh, that... Once you start dancing around this, you realize um, there are any number of solutions to those same problems. It's not necessarily an impasse. Right? Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and you brought up also the oral activity of this, this stuff. Um, it's, it was long supposed that there was no oral activity at all. Uh, but I, I, I have a, a friend who I mentioned in the new book. He kind of helped me with the research. He's a professional alchemist that owns a a pharmaceutical company in India named J. Eric Laporte, who, through his own research, has arrived at an alchemical means of producing an elixir that's orally active that has no monoamine oxidase inhibitor ad added to it, which is the drug, for the listeners who aren't familiar with it, the drug that's added to DMT to render it orally active in the case of things like ayahuasca and modern analogs to ayahuasca. So he's arrived at uh, a substance, a, a, an elixir, a product that is orally active without it. And this is done through two ways that he found. You can, number one, overwhelm the monoamine oxidase in the stomach, which is the monoamine oxidase inhibitor cancels out. So you basically occupy it all and then put more in. Now, this is naturally problematic because it's you don't have to take that much and you're wasting your sacrament to do that. But the other thing is that certain species um, he's found, uh, and I also encountered this in, in some other research, but the author's name is escaping me right now. I'm sure it'll come up in a minute. Um, that the 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 flavons, the bioflavonoids present, certain of the bioflavonoids present within certain species of acacia, one of them being acacia confusa, um, act as beta-carbolines, which MAOIs, harmine, harmaline, those are beta-carbolines. It acts as a beta-carboline and functions as an MAOI and renders it orally active in some cases, but uh, I haven't been able personally to visit his, he, ha, he has a retreat you can visit, I think in Thailand, um, where you can experience this elixir 
that he's arrived at, but I, I haven't had the opportunity. Um, but I have no doubts that he's uh, he's telling telling the truth because you know a lot of those problems that were solved in the new book, particularly the 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 problems surrounding the use of the primum ends, um, he helped me arrive at those conclusions. I couldn't have arrived at them on my own in those cases. So I'm not, myself, I'm not a practicing alchemist. You know, I, well, you did seem to find something in your, I'm assuming this is from your new book, um, where you did find a man named Herbert Irwin described mm -hmm. something called herb rue, which you believe is Syrian rue, which... So these are early members of the same Rosicrucian order that I just mentioned that has the reference to the red dragon, courageous and warlike. And this comes, when is this? The late 1800s? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, this is, so they're, they're members of the Theosophical Society, the Rosicrucians. And one of the early members of the SRIA, which is the group that gave way to the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, it's called Sucietus Rosicruciana in Anglia. Um, the men who founded this order and ran it accepted the Rosicrucian ties of a man named Frederick Hockley uh, to such a degree that they admitted him without any questions. They didn't make him go through the initiation rituals. Is this they the English Rosicrucian yes. Society or the Robert Wentworth? That's right. Robert Wentworth Little and uh, James Hugan, I think, are the two who um, founded it. Okay. Um, but they're members, and they they have this teacher who is is also a member, but is sort of looked at as the granddaddy of this stuff. He's, he's really kind of hailed as a, a, a living icon of Rosicrucianism at the time. And what he was was a bookseller. He would translate documents. He would copy out grimoires. But he was, his main thing was crystal gazing, just like Dean Kelly. He was into mirror and crystal gazing and talking to angels. He was particularly... Um, infatuated with something called the crowned angel of the seventh sphere that he would talk to in these sessions. But uh, he was the teacher of a guy named Kenneth R.H. McKenzie, who's a member of this group, SRIA, and two other men, um, Captain F.G. Irwin and his son, who was not a Mason, I don't think, because he was too young, um, Herbert Irwin. And Kenneth R.H. McKenzie, at the time, he's in the process of writing the first Masonic encyclopedia, and it's called the Royal Masonic Encyclopedia. Well, he gets to the entry on a Masonic organization that I talk about in the first book that makes reference to Acacia in an alchemical context. They're trying to write an entry on them for this encyclopedia, but they don't have enough physical information on the fraternity to warrant an entire entry. Now, this is when they turn to the methods Hockley was teaching them, crystal invocation, and they invoke the spirit of Cagliostro, whom they believed to have been a member of this organization. And what Cagliostro proceeds to tell them in these transmissions he starts to give them a pharmacopoeia, this list of plants used by this organization. 
and all of the plants listed are drugs or are used in recipes where drugs show up. Like in, for example, like in flying ointments where you see things like vervain show up that you wouldn't call entheogenic, but it shows up nonetheless in conjunction with them. Now, just so I understand, they they are actually trying to channel a dead cogliostro to get drug recipes from. That's right. Okay. So they're they're channeling to get information on this organization. What they're getting is drug recipes. <laughs> okay. Nice. Okay. So so cogliostro <laughs> is telling them, and one of the drugs he tells them they need to acquire is the is herb rue that. He tells them that it causes strength in the brain. It makes you sweat. Uh, it gets rid of diseases of the brain. Now, all of these things that are, sounds like drugs, but he doesn't really tell what herb rue is outside of just calling it herb rue. Well, rue itself is a common plant, ruta graviolens, which is used, it's used to splash holy water and, and some forms of Catholicism and orthodoxy. Uh, I think orthodoxy. I know it's used in Catholicism, but um, and it's used to to clean the temple in Judaism. You know, it serves these kind of functions, but it's not entheogenic. But whenever you get into the older literature, you find out that there isn't just one rue. There's something called rue, and then there's something called wild or savage rue, and this shows up in plenty of the elders' book on natural history, where he says. You know, that regular rue is one thing, but wild rue is something else, and it's much stronger. And if you take too much of it, it's a poison. And uh, later on, a number of different botanists identify this as this wild rue as uh, paganum homala. And I think the word Pliny uses is even for wild rue is even paganum. So the implication is that there was really no distinction made at this time between cultivated rue and wild rue outside of the fact that they thought that wild rue was hallucinogenic or a drug or poison, all these things, and the other wasn't. So we don't know, it doesn't say wild rue, but the description given of the effects of, of herb rue are consistent with the effects of Paganum Hormala. Paganum Hormala having an MAO in it, which is used to this day as an antidepressant in psychiatry, diseases of the brain. If you take enough of it, you definitely sweat and you have visions. And, uh, and I can say from personal experience that it causes extreme clarity of thought at the right doses. Um, it's a very strange it, experience in and of itself. It's, it's mm -hmm. definitely different than other tryptamines or, you know, psychedelics in the same family it's certainly psychedelic yeah too. You're not seeing visions but your headspace is in a psychedelic headspace but again like i said he mentions it and again in addition to telling the symptoms of it which are consistent with the symptoms of paganum homala he mentions it alongside other drugs or plants that are traditionally combined with drugs in these crying sessions and we know that two other points that need to be mentioned number one we know that it wasn't just herb root. It wasn't just one thing because in the letter Hockley wrote to them about it, he said, look, y'all, I am really excited about this herb root, but you haven't sent me the recipe. I need the recipe. <laughs> if it was an herb, he would have said, send me the herb or tell me the name. But he's saying, give me the recipe for this herb root that you're talking about because I'd like to try it. Very interesting. And the other 
point that's that's important is Herbert Irwin. Now they're they're using Herbert as a seer. They're invoking, and this is true how this is done traditionally in ceremonial magic to this day in some traditions, where you have the person doing the invocation, and then you have the scryer or seer, just like with John Dee and Edward Kelly, same kind of relationship. Well, in these some of these versions, like you'll see in some versions of the Abramelin rite, for example. The seer is a child. It has to be a virgin. They want a virgin seer. So that's the role Herbert's playing. He's this virgin seer. He's only like 14 or 15 years old. Oh, wow. But we know that they're using drugs in these sessions because Herbert eventually dies of an overdose during one of these sessions because they give him so much opium uh, in the form of laudanum to try and induce the visions that he he dies. Wow. So they are using already using not just drugs excessive amounts of drugs um, to accomplish this stuff and back to what you said earlier that there wasn't you know we're sort of looking at this from a modern context where we've gone through like you know the dea era you know drugs are bad psychedelics are harmful is sort of what we're culturally taught now but back then that wasn't necessarily the case and it would it kind of makes sense to me why people would indulge to that level and even to the point where, like, I don't know if you would agree with this, it does seem like even during that time period, like, just combining a lot of different uh, visionary yeah. drugs was very common. I mean, just for example, in Pascal Beverly Randolph's instructions, uh, he recommends for magic mirrors 300 grams of hashish, 250 grams of opium, 50 grams of henbane, and 20 grams of belladonna. I mean, that's quite... That would be quite a trip, I think, for anyone. That's his recipe. That's his recipe for the Dawam Misk, the same Egyptian electuary we were talking wow. about earlier. He, so when he had his first experience with cannabis, it was in the form of Dawam Misk wow. at, at the hands of an Egyptian Muslim, and that's what it allegedly contained. And he's in his personal accounts of it. He says, you know, if you he he's he says something very odd. He says. If you just use hashish alone, you are subject to lies because negative entities can come and trick you. He said, but if you combine it with all of these other plants, they can't even come near and the entire experience becomes glorious, you know, uh, ineffable. And uh, I'm sure it it did verge on that with, with all the henbane and belladonna. Those are, excuse me, those are plants that... Are, are considered classic witches hallucinogens that were allegedly used in uh, flying ointments. Uh, you know, and henbane the, the, is henbane also like an atropine or scopolamine containing all plant? of those are atra, nitrate, mandrake root, which is also and, used and, in in traditional ayahuasca brews. It was discovered much later on. Toe, they call toe. Yeah, so they'll add root fancy or datura flowers to ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. But um, but even like we talked about the Elucoan earlier, the Masonic high degree system, the theurgic system, um, they their uh, rituals were just published. Um, you can get through. Uh, I don't even want to name the publisher; they're so terrible. You can find green the green book by Elucoan. You can find it. Um, but the recipe in there calls for henbane seeds to be burned during the ritual. Uh, which would clear clearly induce visual experience, a hallucinatory experience. And then René Leforestier gives a recipe for the Elucoan temple incense in one of his books that involves 
um, white and black poppy seeds, and he says spore of agaric. Now, mushroom spores, not only the mushroom spores aren't active when you burn them, but it, it raises the question, why is he using them? And where did the mushrooms go that they got the spores from? You know, where, where did those end up? But, uh, but so, and, and henbane was also allegedly what was used at the uh, Temple of Delphi, something that the oracle would use in conjunction with uh, the methyl gas that would arise from the volcanic crack in the floor that would induce her ability to enter to what's called mantica, a mantic frenzied state that produces uh, oracles. You were talking about how you know, a lot of this stuff back during this time period did not have nearly the same taboo that it does now. And in some cases it was completely accepted, but I, I, I'm struck by this idea that even now in 2021, there does seem to be, at least in the psychedelic community, a taboo or sort of a, a, a condescending point of view on other types of drugs. For example, mm-hmm. you wouldn't, you rarely hear a psychedelic author today encouraging the use of psychedelics in conjunction with belladonna or opium for example it's almost considered like no that's not that's not cool man you know like we're only going to do mushrooms and lsd so it's sort of interesting to think that there's not very much practical experience or knowledge written down even today of people experimenting with these kind of concoctions and i just find that is a great source if you're familiar with thomas hatz's i'm not actually Who's he? The Psychedelic Witch. He also calls, he's got a channel called The Psychedelic Historian. He wrote a book called The Witch's Ointment, but uh, he's probably the most familiar with how to use nightshades Interesting. Um, safely and uh, and also not safely. He, he knows everything. <laughs> well, Jonathan Ott was, seemed to be someone who was sort of going, pushing the envelope yeah. in that area as well. It, it, it's clear that it showed up. You see in... in North America with the Chumash, you know, they would give a drink of Datura to a boy when he was eight years old as a rite of passage wow. because they thought this is how you, this is how you give them strength and the spiritual side of life. Um, and and one thing that I like to point out to to these kind of naysayers that say, you know, only ayahuasca or only mushrooms, when you start looking at, and the reason they say this is because of the word itself, indigen, that which induces an experience of the divine within. For some reason, this becomes limited to, the divine becomes limited to the tryptamine experience, not any other facet of the divine that could exist. Yeah. But whenever you start really looking at these traditions, and, you know, it would take a lot of time to qualify the statement, but I believe it to be true, you find more evidence that non-entheogens were used in an entheogenic context than so-called entheogenic ones, like opium and Datura and any alcohol. Alcohol yeah. is a great example. I mean, uh, completely rejected and derided. But you see, I mean, the the entire Dionysian religion, whether it's in symbol or in reality, is based around that. The Christian religion, fundamentally based on wine. When you take away the wine, you you completely divested of its its definition in a way. Um, and you see that with. Uh, like um, certain sects of Hasidic Jews, where they do a little, you know, drink vodka and, and jump for two hours. I've, I've known a couple of guys like this, and I mean, what they get out of alcohol is not the same thing as what someone else gets out of alcohol. And uh, that's 
that's another another important point is that you know lots of people will pass around words to define these drugs and their states like hallucinogen psychedelic entheogen when really the drug is none of those things all of those things only happen when a person approaches that drug sure any any if you take a completely unprepared person with no vocabulary for this, for a tryptamine substance, most of it's going to bypass them because they have no frame of reference to even discuss it. But you give them a vocabulary for it, and all of a sudden, a world opens up that uh, was missed. And this happens with drugs, I think, because um, you take an unprepared person with no ritual preparation or understanding of the function of sacred space and you give them a psychedelic or they have no intention or anything like that and you give them a psychedelic nine times out of ten they're not going to have an entheogenic experience they might have a hallucinogenic experience where they're seeing things that you would characterize as a hallucination you know but you get a little bit more prepared and a little bit more focused and understanding and you get a vocabulary for this and your experiences can manifest as psychedelic in the true sense of the word of mind manifesting, which becomes important when we think about the injunction to know thyself interacting with self as other in the form of psychedelic trip is a perfect first step in the direction of know thyself, but under the greatest circumstances and even accidental, I mean, this stuff doesn't have to be prepared through circumstances. It can be just like Satori enlightenment, just kapow. But under the right circumstances, you can elicit an experience that you would define as entheogenic. And that entheogenic experience can come from opium, alcohol, mushrooms, amanita muscari mushrooms. It doesn't matter because the experience isn't in the drug. Angels aren't in the drug. You know, they, they, they emerge when a man approaches that drug. Albert Pike... He wrote extensively about the Rig Veda and Soma. He wrote about Halma. Is that how you pronounce it? Halma. And so he seemed fully aware of these, you know. He put it in the degrees. It's in the Masonic degrees. Exactly. In the, so In the 32nd degree, you encounter this symbol of a, a seven-pointed star that are related to these figures called the Amesha Spentus in Zendavesta. One of those Amesha Spentus is uh, what's called a spawn. So it's a, a personification of a spawn, which is Paganum Hermolyses, just like we see Soma personified as a deity in the Rig Veda. So, yeah, that, this is the one thing that I'm really fascinated by because Albert Pike spent seemingly around 17 years of his life diving heavily into these ancient religious texts sort of tearing them up and down to try to deconstruct them in every way he possibly could, as he also did Freemasonry, um, you know, his book Esoterica, Book of the Words. He seems to try to peel away at all the layers of all the symbolism. I mean, how did someone deconstruct Masonry as much as he did and then also write so extensively about Soma, a, a substance to let you commune with the gods, but never wrote anything in depth about drugs, intoxicating substances, the ritualistic use of them outside of Soma. And he even his, you know, where he deciphers the symbolism of acacia, he doesn't really ever seem to come upon the idea that it could be a drug. And I'm just wondering, yeah. what, why do you think that he didn't make these connections? Even though he was fully aware of Elias Ashmole, he references them 
quite a lot. I don't think I think that by the time Pike got to the party, it was already long out of vogue. The use of acacia in any practical alchemical kind of setting, if it was happening somewhere, it wasn't in America. You know, this he, we're talking about American Freemasonry, which is so fragmented. You know, when when we look at masonry in England, there's the United Grand Lodge of England. We look at masonry in America, there's a Grand Lodge for every state. Each state has their own unique work. There's a lot of crossover, but depending on where that state got its charter, determines what their work looks like. And a lot of them, in certain cases, aren't even recognizable as the same. So I think by the time Pike got to the party, you know, he's actively working just like most of the people were in the middle of this is he's in the middle of what's called the 19th century occult revival. Mm -hmm. You know, he's uh, he's not doing this in a vacuum. Everybody around him who is into this kind of stuff is doing this. And, and a lot of them were using, I mean, like Pascal Beverly Randolph was using drugs. Yeah. We know that Blavatsky was using hashish, probably opium. And we know, you know, John Patrick Davini, who wrote the, the Randolph biography, he wrote a paper called, um, the two theosophical societies. And this is in reference to the, the fact that the first version was this practically oriented society that had a textbook even called Art Magic by a woman named Emma Harding Britton or Ardinge Britton. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. It's H-A-R-D-I-N-G-E. But, uh, and she, this was written in the 1850s and she makes reference to, she says the most, the, 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 most powerful means of inducing the trans condition, which is a prerequisite, she says, for communicating with angelic hierarchies, is the use of drugs. And then she goes on to list the drugs to be used. She says, hashish, opium, nitrous oxide. And then she says, the distillations, the acrid distillations from two or three species of fungi or something, the species, the distillations of two or three species of acrid fungi. But those are the words, however, she combines them but that's interesting because at the time as mordecai uh Mor- what's his name mordecai the guy who wrote uh, the seven sisters of sleep um he points out all the known in, in drugs known to the victorians of the era he lists amanita muscaria mushrooms because that's the mushroom that was known two or three mushrooms were not known now we know about you know, Liberty Caps and and uh, Psilocybe Mexicana, Cubensis, and all these from basically because of Wasson, Gordon Wasson's publication in Life magazine in 1956 or 57. But prior to all of that, all we knew about really was one hallucinogenic mushroom. She's talking about two or three. This is their textbook of the first Theosophical Society. And we know that the first elected president or vice president, I think, was this George Felt character who immediately after this scandal disappears, who was never seen again. He is, according to Henry Steele Alcott, who was one of the founders of the society, who's Blavatsky's right-hand man. According to him, the entire basis of this society was on a a demonstration felt did for the members. And what he did was burned some kind of drug 
on uh, a charcoal that fumigated the place and then caused everyone present to see things they described as therianthrope demons with like cat ears. They're like, you know, basically, um, Alcott said they were as terrifying as the demons from Francis Barrett's The Magus. Well, those are goetic demons and the Magus. They're, they are uh, half animal, half human images that even modern scholars associate with the use of hallucinogens in the case of cave drawings and petroglyphs. So there's, he's burning something that causes them all to have these visions. And it causes such a mass hysteria that they shut it down. And that's when Blavatsky's like, all right, no more magic. From now on, just speculative. So, uh, so yeah, they even, and, and what's it really interesting is that the, this first manifestation, um, Mitch Horowitz talks about this, for example, in his book on uh, Occult America, uh, that the earliest manifestation of the Theosophical Society was in the name of Cagliostro. They said that they wanted to resurrect the Rosicrucianism of Cagliostro. So there's already this spirited call to kind of the poster child for this lineage. And Bavatsky specifically um, talks about Cagliostro a lot in, in her writings. And she seems to make this distinction saying he, like, I guess there was this reputation among people that he was some kind of charlatan. Or hoaxer, yeah, but still like Kelly, you know, they're 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 viewed with suspicion, but in most cases, that suspicion is balanced or outweighed by this demonstration of a knowledge of something that is tangible. Especially with Cogliostro, because he, I mean, he is an extremely famously depicted figure all throughout history. It's, I mean, he left some kind of impression. He must have not just been a a, a charlatan. So it's interesting mm -hmm. that she. Really, it's like she seemed to be really intent on sort of rebranding him as someone very serious that wasn't, you yeah. know, that had something really serious to offer. So I'm, I guess what I'm asking is, did she, do you think that she had any? I mean, because she doesn't bring up this section of his Egyptian right. Like you said, you were the first person to say, hey, this part of his Egyptian right seems like it's talking about consuming a drug. Well, she does point at Ragon, who was a famous French mason. He wrote a book called Occult Masonry. Okay. That actually talks about the use of things like belladonna and henbane hmm. to induce the trance condition, just like we saw with Emma Harding Britton. Well, he founded a Masonic organization called Le the Lodge of Trinosophists. Um, he took this name from a, an alchemical manuscript called Le Tres Saint Trinosophie, which was written by Cagliostro, was found in Cagliostro's possession upon his arrest. Now, when we look at this document, um, it's filled with great pictures. And one of those pictures is a bird with, in its beak, uh, a sprig of acacia. And there's a second picture of the bird on an altar holding the sprig of acacia next to a bowl of fire. So the implication is that it's going to be burned. Maybe. Well, the accompanying text to this tells a story that is an obvious version of what we see in Cagliostro's initiation when he's giving the candidate the red liqueur and telling him to drink it. And in this, the candidate is given this crystal goblet full of a saffron colored liquor, a red liqueur, just like Cagliostro's. He drinks it. It induces his, he says he feels 
um, a divine fire course throughout his whole body. He says he feels braver. His intellectual abilities even feel doubled. All of these are consistent with low to moderate doses of entheogenic compounds. Um, and I illustrate this with uh, James Fadiman and Willis Harmon's psychedelics and problem solving experiment, where they gave just microdoses of mescaline to professionals who had been um, at an impasse uh, in their work for three months or more on a problem they couldn't solve. In every single case, not only did they solve their problems, but their solutions were accepted by their peers and became commonplace after that. That was the became pro, the protocol. So he, they these two psychiatrists demonstrated in 1966 that it does increase intellect. You know, it, it does cause these sensations. And if you felt it course through your body when it kicks in, it absolutely causes a divine, a feeling of what you would call a divine fire coursing through your veins. It's, a, it's an intensification of, uh, of vibration, like you said earlier from that, that other quote. Uh, same territory. Now, this uh, this book you just described, this is based off of something else by Cogliostro? Cogliostro had this book in his possession. Oh, he had this book in his possession. It's by... He was arrested by the Inquisition. So this and was written by a French Freemason from his time period. written by Cagliostro. Oh, I'm sorry. So this... Okay, this was written by Cogliostro, and it didn't and it didn't get published until this French Freemason? He didn't publish it. He was inspired by its contents to create a new Masonic lodge called Trinosophists, based on the name La Tre Saint Trinosophie. I see. The book by Cagliostro. Got it. Now, some you'll see in like Manly P. Hall, where the authorship of this text is attributed to Saint Germain, uh, which is ridiculous. Uh, that there's nothing in there to tie it to Saint Germain, but and yet we see this trend, even though. It was in Cagliostro's possession. Cagliostro never said it was written by St. Germain. And when we compare the contents of the book, particularly the appearance of the red liqueur in the sprig of Acacia with the contents of the ritual we know he wrote, which is basically a ritualization of this allegory presented in this book, it's clear the connection. You even see pictures in, in there that are come straight out of masonry of um, Hieroglyph's coffin that even has the same letters stenciled on that coffin that you see in some tracing boards of the master mason degree from Cagliostro's era. Wow. So the situation you described with Henry Alcott, uh, seeing this demonstration that seems to have terrified him, it, it seems like. You said they, the Theosophical Society started at first as a practical magic thing and then quickly turned away from that. I mean, it almost seems like that in a way could be again some sort of discovery of some you know substance or drug that gives you the spiritual experience and then sort of a rush to i don't know panic or fear about it it's almost kind of trying to suppress it again i mean because it doesn't seem like this really comes up again very much in um, at least american occultism i don't know until maybe alistair crowley i mean is that would you say that's accurate you know crowley was probably the first one to be like Cagliostro, vocal about the fact that all of these experiences we magicians are talking about, we arrive at them or can arrive at them through the use of entheogens. That's not the only means, of course. There's many means of inducing 
the trans state and inducing uh, the types of uh, heightened states of consciousness that you experience through certain ritual meditations. It's not just drugs, but he was the first one to say, absolutely, we're fucking using drugs. So what? You know, the trend up to that point wasn't to keep them secret because they were sacred. It was to keep them secret because of, I think, of the embarrassment of this Gnostic derision of nature and saying, oh, well, you think you're you're participating in divinity by eating plants? How absurd. You know, you're you, if you want to participate in divinity, you have to go through this ritual that was designed by God or divinely inspired or that we've obscured the authors to such a degree that it doesn't matter who wrote it. Now it's just ancient and unknown and and it's revealed knowledge. You know, it's it's that trend to say that can't possibly come about through the use of a plant. And I and and it drove it underground. And I think that's partially why um Pascal Beverly Randolph, whom we know not, he not only used it and loved the experience, he was probably the biggest importer of hashish in America during his time. He sold it through newspapers. I was going to ask you about that. Is that is that accurate that he was the that he? I mean, is there yes. anyone else that was? Because he talks about no, having no like uh, boxes oh. and boxes and cases of it in his in his home, he and he invented two drugs. Um, I think they were called amyl and amyline or phenylene or something like that. Two different drugs that were both based on um, what sounds like he had extracted two different drugs out of cannabis. It's um, he doesn't say this, but he he because the language didn't exist. But it sounds like he's identified two substances that do two two different things, almost like THC and CBD. You know, I don't know what he's done, but he's got two drugs that do two different things that both come from cannabis. And yet when we read his writings, anytime he mentions it, he tries to say, oh, it shouldn't be used. And I did use it once, but I would never use it again. You know, things like that. It's 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 like he's embarrassed by it. Not it's it, the, the implication doesn't seem to be prohibit prohibitive because we know that these same kinds of substances could be bought at pharmacists like the Parker Davis extracts of of cannabis and uh, they had an extract that they laudanum. They sold a laudanum, and they even had an extract of mescaline from peyote buttons at one point. Well, I was going to ask you about peyote because that seems to come into the picture around the same time period too. Like the late 1800s, there's the first official peyote church, but apparently that didn't even come from the actual Native Americans in the in the United States. Or apparently that came from Mexico. Uh, so peyote use came up from Mexico and it was uh, introduced. Uh, um, uh, a man had been wounded by, I think by a bull and the healing ceremony was a peyote ceremony that was brought up from Mexico from the ceremony. Peyote use spread like wildfire um, and it became not adopted by every tribe, but it, it unified the tribes in a way that they had never been unified before. Um, but peyote, uh, we see it show up again in the same line of transmission, only it's manifestation in France. So while we've got the Theosophical Society born in America, moved to India, in England, we've got the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor, I mean, the uh, Hermetic um, Order of the Golden Dawn, Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor bridges all of these, you know, all of a sudden, after all of this, on the shoulders of all of these giants comes this fictional 
Falconelli figure, this French alchemist who doesn't exist um, in reality, but his personality was created to apply authorship to this specific text about um, the alchemical significance hidden within certain cathedrals like Notre Dame. But the persons behind this fictitious personality that created him uh, were involved with peyote use in France. One of them, um, Alexander Rouchier was his name, was a pharmacist who was growing peyote and producing um, a number of different elixirs from it, from different types of extract. There are five, I believe, five psychoactive alkaloids in peyote, and he had figured out how to extract four or all of them um, on his own and was selling them uh, through mail order. But back then you could get buttons through mail order also. But uh, wow! But so not only were the people behind the Falconelli movement taking peyote, but two years before they published this document on Falconelli, he published a second paper on ayahuasca called, uh, uh, shoot, it's a, it, it, it's something about the telepathic abilities it induces because he saw all these plants as, um, he called it a paleo pharmacy and believed that all of these plants were what were used by ancient peoples to induce clairvoyant abilities. So he gives a list of plants in his paleo divinatory pharmacy, he calls it, which includes cannabis, opium, cocaine, ayahuasca, um, peyote and then he mentions a, a a south american cactus that's like peyote but he doesn't know the name of it obviously talking about san pedro interesting uh, yeah so the the even the people behind what's considered the apex of the french alchemical tradition and the revival of the alchemical tradition as a whole uh, are tripping are completely preoccupied with psychedelics absolutely fascinating I wanted to just ask you one last thing because I wanted to tie this all up with your with these modern discoveries of yours, your role in this personally, um, and how Arturo de Hoyas actually aided you on this sort of quest of your research to try to figure some of this out. And he seems to actually be somewhat of an authority, you know, in Scottish Rite Freemasonry. He is as you said the in charge of the the archives. Um, he seems to be the author or the person who is publishing some of Albert Pike's remaining, you know, unpublished works or works that only got like a hundred copies circulated when they originally printed. So, what is your? How do you feel about that? Because that I mean that must be very interesting from your perspective that you know Albert Pike wasn't someone who seemed to be into practical occultism. He seemed to be mostly scholarly. He knew about Soma. Masons for, I don't know, the next hundred years, as far as I know, like ones at least in the United States, didn't talk about drugs really or or explore these kind of subjects. So to, so to have someone from the Scottish Rite actually sort of telling you, oh, you're may, you might be onto something here, oh, and here's this, like how, how does that make you feel? This must, I mean, this is, seems like quite a revelation to me and a very large gap of time before this stuff was really like seriously looked at by people inside masonry. And, uh, you know, it makes me really elated in terms of the state of psychedelics. 
um, it validates for a large demographic the potential psychedelics have. I, I for one, you know, when I when I was exploring mushrooms and DMT and LSD as a young man and having the caliber of experiences I was having, I had no idea where to turn. I knew I couldn't go back to my Southern Baptist church I was raised in. They weren't talking about anything like that. Uh, so when, when I looked to masonry as sort of a template to interpret this stuff in, by which to frame it, some kind of what I thought at the time was an ancient tradition, and it is, it's connected to ancient traditions, but it's, it's fallacious to call it an ancient tradition. But it, its essence is certainly ancient. But when I joined, you know, I was looking for a frame for that. I didn't need validation for my entheogenic experiences. They were validated by themselves. They're, they validated themselves. So what I was looking for in a way, was almost validation of something else. Who else is saying this? Who else has acknowledged this power, the capacity of these things and, and made it their focus? You know, so I guess, you know, if I'm going to be totally honest, I, my interest was twofold. I was looking for a firm footing, and I was also looking for something that resembled myself, I guess, you know, and and I'm sure that I'm not the only one like that. I'm not the only person who is probing these expressions of spirit as we have them in religious traditions and initiatory traditions in search of a validation for not myself, because I know it's valid. The experience validates itself for me. So it's almost instead searching for a legitimate validation of the thing itself because it's so derided. It's just like in the alchemical literature when they talk about the philosopher's stone. It's the most common thing that men and children pass her by in the streets and and step on step on her. Talking about the stone, you know, it's this notion that it's it's everywhere. It's so obvious. It's like water to a fish that we just instantly dismiss it. And and drugs fall into that category because of the taboo and the. Uh, the prohibition, it's just dismissed and thrown in the wastebasket, but there it shimmers. And, and, uh, so as far as how it makes me feel, it gives me hope that, uh, you know, we're, we're already seeing psychedelics sort of being validated by science and, and coming to the, the attention of the broader populace, but it gives me a little bit of, a. a hope for other people who are out there probing this stuff, looking for some, some sense of saying, yes, what you went through is valid. You're not an alien kind of example. You're not detached. This is real. It's just nobody is, the ones who do know about it can't talk about it because of the very nature of this obs obscuration that happens because of the taboo. Um, I hope I'm making sense, but yeah, that, that's really how I, how, you know, it's validation by people like Arturo de Hoyos. I mean, he doesn't represent the Scottish right. So it's not like saying that all of Masonry has in unison you sure. know, hemmed this discovery and said, wow, this changes our history. You know, the entire fraternity changed 
because of a psychedelic experience and a psychedelic was put there because of its psychedelic nature. Like it hasn't been acknowledged across the board that that's the case. And it doesn't have to be because masonry is the way it functions. It changes you. You don't change masonry. It kind of just is. And if you get something from it, you get something from it. We're just pointing out a history. This happened. Masons did this in the past. We, the best we can do is try and answer why, but, uh, but, but in answering that, I do think we're learning a little bit about ourselves and our place in the world because it validates those, those tentacles that gets from ourselves that get stretched out there in the in the in this act of probing, that that come up empty-handed and say, well, you know. No, I find nothing to validate your experience. And that's, uh, that's alienating. It's isolating. And I don't think people have to feel that way anymore when we're coming to such clear examples of the role these things played in the past. And a problem I run into with Masons today when I'm giving talks, lectures, and interviews, you know, is that I'm constantly accused of, well, you're trying to get Masons to do drugs. You're saying they should do drugs. <laughs> I'm actually not. I think that's the, the most terrifying idea would be a group of Masons as the Masons I know on DMT, all in the lodge together. That is like the antithesis of anything desirable. <laughs> I, I truly feel that way. Um, but that doesn't mean the experience isn't valid. It doesn't mean we should say just because we're saying it shouldn't be done now or can't be done now doesn't make it any less valid or powerful. and and uh, that's that's how that's the closest I can express to how it makes me feel. It makes me makes me hopeful. Yeah, I could totally understand why it would make you hopeful. I mean, it, it seems like the taboo being lifted on psychedelics. Yeah, it's good for everybody. And I mean, even just the fact that Arturo is is interested in your research, even though he's not, you know, this official authority of the Scottish Rite. I think that's just very hopeful also that like masonry people in masonry, his position would be as open-minded as that. And also the the fact that the Royal society posted that letter in 2010. I mean, that's, that's, that's to me is also really interesting that they want to, they want to kind of promote that, you know, it's not something that they would be embarrassed about nowadays. And I think that that sort of wouldn't have been like that in the 1980s or something, I guess. It, it, It makes, you know, we think of the Royal society and it's, in its distance and scientific sort of material, what, what appears to be materialistic pursuits, it comes off as so stale and cold. Um, and then you get a glimpse into things like this, and all of a sudden it acquires qualities that you, you never fathom. They're, they don't just become human. They become curious in a way that is more human than just scientific investigation. Uh, it, it's it's really fascinating to me to uh, to see the the I don't know when you read Robert Boyle talking about talking to angels it's it's so surreal because those are two worlds merging two models that before they published that in most men's minds didn't fit together didn't merge together but uh, but it does it shows that uh, everything isn't just quantity it's quality and that quality for which they were searching is that 
that noetic quality, that divine angelic quality. It's it goes so much deeper than I think people realize. I mean, I was pretty blown away just learning how you know how much Newton was interested in connecting the spiritual to the scientific. I, I just had no idea until I started researching these things like a year ago. And I guess just before we leave PD, I wanted to I wanted to you to tell us what your first what you would describe as your first truly spiritual experience, like on a psychedelic or maybe, or maybe would it be more interesting for you to describe the first time you actually, or have you had an experience on DMT or the psychedelics where you have met, you know, entities or, or what people describe, you know, traditionally in sort of the Rick Strassman, uh, you know, accounts of being visited by entities, um, what was your first experience like that, or have you had an experience like that? I'm, in, I'm, I'm always very reluctant to discuss my experiences because I feel like, number one, uh, I do think they're ineffable. And the minute we try to discuss them, we reduce them to a framework. We make it a little box, almost like I was doing with masonry with my psychedelic experience. I'm trying to reduce it to something manageable because as it is, the revelation is unmanageable. It's beyond the discursive brand of thought that reduces something intelligible. It's not to say it's not intelligible. It's not chaos. It's just supra intelligible. Meta intelligible, if you will, but so I, I'm always reluctant to discuss them, but I will talk about one that uh, simply because it's a great illustration of the type of contact experiences you can have. Um, when I was in college, my wife and I, we took, um, we were in my dorm room and we must have eaten, 20, we had eaten 20 grams and we kept eating it. So it was somewhere between 20 and 30 grams of mushrooms we'd eaten. Oh my God. And, uh, and that we're, you know, keep in mind we're in Mississippi and, that, you know, people hear things like that outside of uh, Kalindi, God rest his soul. You know, they'll hear things like that and think that's insane. But uh, you have to keep in mind we're in Mississippi. We're raised around it, have been eating these things since I was 11 years old. So I'm not even suggesting anybody go out and eat 20 or 30 grams of mushrooms. But that's what we had done on this particular evening. And uh, my, my wife, she, she wasn't my wife then, but she passed out and went like kind of, I couldn't wake her. So I just kind of left her and let her be in her trance state. And uh, I lay down on the bed and started getting the, the visual impressions that you get, you know, when, the, when tryptamine hallucinogens start to kick in and I, the, I saw a, a mandala like thing descend from my ceiling and, um, and it entered my body and I immediately felt it. And as a, as an energy and it, it moved me out of my bed and I got out of the bed, I walked into the bathroom and I remember thinking, Holy shit, I'm too high. This is not, right I need to come down a little bit and I pulled out some cannabis and I started smoking and uh and I became aware of a presence in my body that wasn't just the mandala it was moving and giving me impressions 
and it sits me down. And this is before I had, I had never studied yoga or anything. All I was, was at this point was a, a musician and I was using psychedelics as an aesthetic creative tool. Um, this was this 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 is where it left the realm of creativity and aesthetics. Uh, this this presence sat me down and it uh, crossed my legs and what I now know to call siddhasana. Um, and of course, I, I I have cultural impressions at this point of what a yogi would look like, but I'm not. What I what was happening was not me saying I'm going to sit down and do yoga. My body was doing this thing, so. And after I, I sit down in this siddhasana, I adjust my back, straighten my back, and that this presence starts telling me this way to breathe. And it tells me that, that it's gonna show me how to breathe like a serpent. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. And it says, just do this. And it starts working my lungs for me in a way that I'm breathing through my sinus cavities so I can hear it, you know, hear the air running through in my ears. And after a few breaths of this uh, very circular, deep breathing, um, I started to notice boundary disillusion. I was losing sense of the between me and the bathroom, and um, and I couldn't sense where I ended and my environment was beginning. And it's at that point that I mean. It's not this because you're always having to reduce the experience to something manageable, but it's like Kundalini. It's like something went up and out the top of my head. It's, you know, it's it'd be fallacious to say it was Kundalini because I'm not a yogi. I wasn't raised in that. I don't even know what Kundalini is at this point. I have a Westerner's concept of Kundalini, but whatever happened to me was this feeling of this energy that was the same energy that was communicating to me and moving me around like a puppet went up and out and it was also me going up and out um, and I found myself in a place of infinite blackness where there was no thing no sense of duality and it it seemed like I was an eternity an eternity in this space before there was a sense of I am in this space so it was almost like I emerged from it um, from this blackness but as I emerged so did two serpents next to me, guides on each side of me, taking me wherever I was going. And they were snake people. They were humanoid, hominid, but they were snakes. You know, they had scales and the way their limbs looked was almost like each limb was, its, was a tail branching off and each finger was another tail branching off so that their whole body was this fluid whip-like snake and they're each on each side of me and we stop and come to this area where they tell me that they have two things they want to teach me and one of the things is they they back up and they want me to see their full to well, I'll back up before this happens the the one of them is lying horizontal floating almost like they're on a table and it tells me the first thing I'll learn is by dissecting them and I'm given a scalpel and told to dissect this thing and uh you know in retrospect I think about 
the motif of shamanic dismemberment, where in an initiatory state or on trip the same trip to means I'm on, you know, you might go through the experience of being dismembered and put back together or cut apart and your organs replaced by magic stones or any number of these kind of motifs show up in the shamanic dismemberment phenomenon. But here I am dismembering this thing, you know, it's, it's the other way around. And, and I don't know what shamanic dismemberment is. I'm, you know, it's my first semester in college. I don't know. I'm just, like I said, just a, just a kid. Um, so I dissect this thing and then it shows me what it wants me to understand is that there are no joints in its body, that this bone is one bone that moves throughout them and it, it's flexible and it bends like cartridge, cartilage. And it says, do you understand what I'm telling you by showing you this? And I'm like, absolutely fucking not. I do not understand. <laughs> and it says that there is no division among the thing that is at the heart of myself. It's, it gives me this impression that underlying all of this stuff, we're all one. There are no joints that just fit together. It's a fluid motion. And I, and I say, okay, you know, I'm like, wow, that's fascinating. It's really creepy that you want me to cut you up when you could have just told me that, (laughs) but okay. And then it says, well, you know, that's creepy. Well, here's the second thing. And that's when they back up and want me to observe their entire person. And at this point, there's a red glow coming from them. Like they're in love with each other. They're uh, adoring each other. And then all of a sudden they approach one another and rip each other to pieces. Complete frenzy, feeding frenzy, like a school of piranhas almost. And all that's left are these bits of black meat floating around in this infinite space that we're in. And then the voice persists from right where it was standing. Do you understand what I'm showing you by showing you this? And I'm like, absolutely not. I was nauseous, completely grossed out by what I was seeing. I could not, I didn't even want to look at it. It made me so so sick to look at it but it says instead of saying it it gave me the impression just like it did before it's it gave me the impression of we're gone and yet we're still here we're talking to you we we remain and are imparting to you what you understand in this state as knowledge you're listening to us as other here we are and our bodies have just been destroyed do you understand what i'm saying to you and I said, I, I guess I do. I guess I understand that you're saying that there is no separation among all of us at its in the final analysis, and that when this physical vessel is gone, something persists, and we can call that us. And just like a light switch, I was back in my body, sitting on the floor in my bathroom, not even high anymore. I mean, just kind of in a state of bewilderment. Um, And my wife was standing there talking to me. So apparently when I came to, I came to probably because she aroused me. You know, I I was, she said I looked like I was asleep (laughs) when she woke me. But when all of that ended, I, just like in a dream, you know, where you wake up and 
whatever is waking you manifested in the dream. It was almost like that coming to out of that dream, but it was just all gone. And, uh, and here's why I'm always reluctant to talk about my experiences is because my first impression was to tell her that in that moment, what happened? I'm going to say, you know, snake people. And before I could say it, I felt distance between myself and them and those guides that were there for me all of a sudden. And I would stop and think, Oh, don't say it. And as soon as I'd stop, I'd feel it get closer. And, and over time, I've come to realize that what that distance is that you can perceive firsthand on a psych in a psychedelic state, it happens every day. The minute we try and reduce the miracle of experience to something you can communicate to another person. And the problem with memory is such that you don't necessarily remember the thing as much as you remember the last time you told the thing. So it gets reduced each time until finally it's this neat little box that if it lasts this long is a tradition that your kids can say, Oh yeah, that's this myth or that's this allegory or that's that book. That's this fairy tale, you know, but, uh, but that's my, um, that's probably the, the most obvious example of a contact experience that I've ever had that, uh, that I'm, <laughs> that I'm, uh, I'm okay with talking about. Thank you for telling that story. That's really incredible. And I don't know if you have written that down in one of your books, but, uh, but maybe you should, cause it's a pretty, pretty awesome, uh, retelling. Where can people get your book, The Angels of Vermilion, once it comes out on May 19th? Uh, the best place is going to be through the publisher, Tria Prima. And if you want to preview, there is a sample chapter published on the website. Um, it's the Fulcanelli chapter. So if you want to read about Fulcanelli, Rue Hare, and uh, Champagne and their <clears throat> entheogenic proclivities, there's a... Um, a link there and on that page there is a link to buy the book once it goes live which will be midnight um may 19th and may 19th we chose that date because it's the uh the feast day of saint dunstan of canterbury he's the saint patron of alchemy in prague and the man from whose grave kelly claimed to have gotten the red powder so fascinating <laughs> that's, that's why we chose that date and uh, also, PD, you have written a book called Alchemically Stoned, which I highly recommend. Anybody who's listening to this, check out if you're interested in this subject. And anything else you want to leave our listeners with before we go, PD? Oh, man, I, I think you've been a, uh, an incredible host and interviewer, very uh, knowledgeable on, on my uh, sector of research. And I, I thank you for that. And uh, thanks for having me. I've, I've really had a good time. Yeah, this is a this is a great conversation. I'd love to speak with you at some point in the future, and I'm sure that your your research will continue, and you're gonna find. I think you're gonna find some more stuff. I'm very confident of that. So, oh, it's already <laughs> in the work. Oh, we're already can't wait. Several chapters into the new book, so you you have plenty to look forward to. All right, man. Well, kept you a pretty long time. I, I can't thank you enough for taking this much time with me today. My pleasure. All right, take care, man. Thanks, buddy.
please consider becoming a subscriber to Media Roots Radio. You can do that by going to patreon.com slash Media Roots Radio. Starting at the $5 subscription tier, that gives you access to our once a month bonus episode. And this month's bonus episode will be the Freemasonic History of the United States, Part 7. Take care.